Hello everyone, I'm Thomas from Daft Punk. Random access memories, Daft Punk. Daft Punk and Thomas Angui from Daft Punk. There you go, Daft Punk. We assume that's Daft Punk under those helmets. Hello everyone, I'm Emmanuel from Daft Punk. Daft Punk mixes of Daft Punk. Daft Punk! Let's get back to the to Daft Punk. It was because of, you know, Daft Punk. Daft Punk. Daft Punkin! Daft Punkin! Welcome, robots big and small, to a live 2021 a Daft Punk podcast. I'm Andy. I'm Darren. And I'm Devin Rosenheim. And we are three best friends obsessed with the Frenchest robots in the world, Thomas, Guiman, Thomas and Guiman, Daft Punk. Daft Punk. Daft Punk. Daft Punk. Daft Punk. Daft it's, just, it's my job Punk-kin. to echo the first time you say Daft Punk. Every, t- every episode, I just yeah. echo it right away. It Daft is, Punk. It's one of the best band names to just say. Daft Punk. Daft Punk. Daft Punk. It's a good band name. It's a great name. Yeah. They they should be forever grateful to that guy that talks shit about their music in yeah. that review. Haters only make you stronger. Yeah, haters. I've heard they're motivators. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I fuck, ha- fuck haters and push faders. That's what these guys are. Behind say. every <laughs> successful French robot is a pack of haters. <laughs> a wild pack a of wild haters. A wild pack of feral haters. <laughs> feral haters. <laughs> oh, man. We have quite an episode for you today. We are talking about um, the album that skyrocketed them from world-famous dance musicians to legendary proprietors of the groove. Proprietors of the groove. What a, that, that's that's a, a, a good description right there. Legendary proprietors of the groove. I'm the Discovered. CFO of the groove. <laughs> I'm the chief operating officer of groove. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, um, we had another great week, and we got we heard from uh, more of our fans. We've heard from Ryan Fust in the past. He just wanted to give us an update. Uh, so uh, I I posted in the Daft Punk Collectors group on Facebook, seeing if anybody could help me out figuring about uh, his album. Nobody really has any idea about the rarity of his misprint album, or uh, or how much it's worth. Ryan put it up on eBay just to see what would happen. He got. An, uh, an offer for eleven hundred dollars. Yeah, so much. That is insane. I saw. Uh, so I did. I did a little research myself as well. And all I can offer is to verify that on Reddit there are people who have talked about it. Yeah, but there's nobody yeah, that has sold it. Everybody's like, I'm gonna hold on and see what happens. Same with Discogs. Yeah. And and Ryan said he's not gonna save his or sell his either. He wants to keep onto it. Yeah. Also, it's shout out cool. to Ryan for getting that Romanthony tune I was looking for. Yeah. Um, I talked to him this week to thank him. That that rocks. I really appreciate Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Um, uh, that, that is so cool. Um, we also heard from another fan, uh, all the way from, uh, England. Neil is a, is a fan from the UK and he said he's been thinking about uh, messaging us since the beginning and he finally hit that send button. Yeah. Thank you so you much. Did. Um, he's been doing an, a weekly internet radio show. Um, and, uh, he, he recently got back into, into doing this radio show. He does a lot of breakbeat stuff and, but he's, uh, in the last year or so, he's expanded his musical, uh, influences on the show. And in December, a couple months before the, the boys broke up, he did a four hour career retrospective mix of Daft Punk. Uh, and, uh, it said, he said it includes all of their stuff, a bunch of, uh, a bunch of their solo stuff, a bunch of their collaborator stuff. 
uh, and he sent us a link. I'm going to post uh, a link to his mix on our Facebook page so you can check that out. Four hours of nothing but um, Daft Punk and Daft Punk, Punk inspired music. Spoiler alert, it's good. Yeah, it's <laughs> good to me. <laughs> Um, so yeah, check that out on our, on our Facebook page. If you want to check that out because who wouldn't, right? Uh, he says, keep up the amazing work. You guys, I love the podcast. And, uh, he says it's inspired him to, uh, start one of his own. So once he figures what out, what his subject will be, it better not be fucking dab. <laughs> it better not be. Better or not we'll be. have to have like, we'll, <laughs> we'll do like a sharks in the Jets style yeah. podcast fight in the middle of the streets. Yeah. I can't wait till somebody tries to make it that fun podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you, Neil. Uh, uh, and it's so cool that we're getting emails and stuff from the United Kingdom and, and all over the world. Yeah. Back Incredible. then, if you wanted to write to your favorite podcast before email, you had to put it on a boat. Yeah, you had to get, took it. It took weeks to get there. Back, and you had to, if you wanted to get your podcast to uh, uh, around the world, you had to put it on a boat too. You, yeah, you, it was. A, it would be played on a phonograph. <laughs> yeah, they, you would put a whole phonograph on a boat and sail it over, and people would gather around in the town square weeks after the episode. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and now look at that. The internet, um, people can listen Technology to this. Technology has come so Technology far. Technology has come so far. The first podcast was carved into stone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're doing this on our, on our phones practically. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible stuff. Incredible. Um, uh, we've also got uh, a bunch of good reviews. DTW313, five stars. He says, if you love the duo, you'll love this trio. Yeah. <laughs> that's oh, a that's great a good, review. That's, that's a good little quote to, to peel off there. Yeah, we put might on have our, to use uh, box that. set or whatever the hell. Yeah, we might have to use one that day. one. Uh, and uh, Yusulio says, this pod, he's five stars too. He says, this podcast uh, makes my grooves punky and my daft funky. <laughs> that's yeah, another, good, another, good another good review. Uh, so, uh, yeah, keep up the good reviews. Well, uh, we'll read them. You know what? If you give us a terrible one-star review and, and talk bad about us, we'll probably read that, too. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, review us. And we'll Don't encourage read. people to give us bad reviews. <laughs> We're going to get downlisted on the podcast apps. We've got dozens of one-star awful Live reviews. 2021, whoever wins, we lose. Whoever wins, we lose. <laughs> Um, but oh, it's very geez. cool. Uh, we love we love hearing. So like people like Neil from the UK, uh, we love hearing other people's experiences with UK or, or with Daft Punk. So if you're out there making stuff, if you make Daft Punk fan art or uh, um, slash fiction, yeah. <laughs> we want to hear it. I mean, uh, we, we so we, send uh, it to us. We have a uh, an email address info at alive 2021.com. So if you have something cool like um, like uh, Neil's mix to share with us. Uh, uh, we can share it with other Daft Punk fans, or if you just want to tell us uh, uh, how much you enjoy the show and and how much you enjoy Daft Punk, we would like to hear that yeah. too. Anything, or if I if uh, any of our information is wrong and you want to correct the record at all, uh, again, we want to hear it. We have a very uh, we're all from Michigan here, so we have a very Detroit, Michigan perspective on Daft Punk. And in our effort to learn more about this duo, we would love to hear about your perspective uh, from all over the world. Maybe you have a story about Daft Punk specific to a show that happened near you, or specific to something that has specifically to do with your country or your region or your <laughs> so state. We want to know. My my sister is is not a dance music fan, right? 
and I was updating my family like this is the show. This is like uh, this is how much the reach has gone so far. We're we're getting we're finding people out all, all over the world. A guy from France emailed us in Fr- in French, and we had to translate his message to see what it said. And she she goes why? Because <laughs> well that's where they're from. Yeah. <laughs> she knows so little about that funk that she didn't. So so yeah, like um um, if you're over there in Paris and you know something about. Daft Punk that we that never trickled over here. Um, we are we love these guys, and I, uh, we're doing a ton of research and learning out uh, learning so much stuff we never knew. And but I know there's there's more out there. So uh, if you have a story, or if you have you know if you ever found yourselves at a rave and Tomas was there and you want to tell us that story, anything at all, we want to hear it. So please yeah, uh, reach out. Uh, yeah, but um, I think it's about time. Yeah, it's because this boys this one. Is gonna be a corker. Yeah, it's. Ooh, uh, we've been looking forward to this uh, this episode uh, from the beginning. I, there's not really. Uh, we're not gonna say any episode is more or less important than any other, but we are very excited about discovery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I'll go ahead and say it right now that the the Daft Punk rumors episode we're gonna do after Random Access Memories. That is not as important as the discovery episode, because <laughs> the stuff that they were I've been re- spreading and launching some really wild rumors, <laughs> just so we have more, so to, we talk have more to talk about. about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but if if you're a Daft Punk fan, you understand how much just rumors about them maybe doing something is is a part of being a fan of theirs. It's it's dizzying after a while. We'll get to that though, because right now. I think it's time to get to it. It's time. French music journalist Jean-Daniel Bevoulet has possibly written about and had more access to Daft Punk than any other writer. He has seen the boys from the earliest days and has enjoyed watching their upward trajectory through the entire music industry. JDB, as we'll affectionately call him, has a unique perspective about our little boys, and he uh, has shared he's shared some fascinating insights in the BBC documentary Daft Punk Unchained. In that movie, he says... From 2001 on, they're no longer regular guys. We are talking to robots. The last time I interviewed them, we talked for three and a half hours, and Tomas never used the word I. The first person no longer existed. It's totally erased. They are daft punk from then on. Uh, Our favorite boys disappeared into a world of live performances and solo experimentation after their smash hit debut, Homework. They had no interest in stasis for the uh, for the project uh, that had brought glo- a global spotlight on them and French dance music. It is truly hard to overstate just how radically and bravely different Daft Punk was when it reemerged from a public hibernation. Gone was the fuzzy, chaotic party em- energy of homework. Gone was the DIY grittiness of the entire brand. Gone were the Letterman jackets and scraggly rocker vibes and rawness. They changed so much when they came back, they weren't even human truly imagine listening to homework and discovery without knowing who produced them and being told then that they were from the same two young musicians truly imagine seeing having seen scrawny uh, a scrawny gimon smoking a cigarette outside a paris rave and knowing that he was now a gold-plated robot who along with his silver compatriot set the course of the entire pop music industry for the next 20 years with a genre bending wholly new album that has never been matched in sound or innovation 
At the turn of the millennium, Tomas Bangalter and Guimán de Homem Cristo were ready to change the world. They were the only two who knew it just yet. Um, as we discussed, uh, as the 2000s dawned, many of the people who launched the electronic dance music in France were beginning to feel creatively stifled by a flat sameness creeping into the scene. Daft Punk was keenly aware of this and wanted to use what they had learned and take that sound in a new and exciting direction. And we're definitely against the setting of rules and think that house music, even if you take the really more as a, as, a, as a state of mind and a spirit rather than a style and uh, because if not it will just become a style next to all the other styles mm -hmm. and the house music it was maybe the, the, the ability to focus on non-professional uh, production process in the home studio and, and having this freedom of mind to, to express yourself exactly the way you want to so that was Tomas in 2001 talking about this record and I think that that's a really interesting quote because if you think about kind of what, what we heard from Philippe from Cassius last week about how he turned around and all of a sudden everything was the exact same, that's exactly what these guys were fighting against in the, in the 90s when they invented the French touch sound. They wanted to do something different, and all of a sudden they were the leaders of something like hundreds of musicians were doing the exact same. You know what I mean? Yeah, the, the barrier to entry... <clears throat> In terms of making this music, you know, the nature of it is you can make it in your bedroom and then, you know, suddenly everyone was and, and you yeah. lose a lot of what is fun and special about it if if everyone's making the same song over and over and over again. Yeah, he, he goes on. He talks about how uh, they were they this music perked them up because there were no rules, right? Like pop music um, now is so stylized that you know exactly what part of the song is supposed to come next. And it almost becomes like a rote pattern. They, they freed themselves of that. And then all of us, they kind of set a new pattern uh, in the build of these tracks. And they were like, I, we don't, we're not interested in that anymore. Um, so that I, that's where we'll get into how these songs sound different structurally than um, anything they've done before. But, uh, um, really they were interested in, in experimenting with the sounds and structural styles of house music and turning them towards uh, um, putting them together in different new ways to make make it sound new and exciting. And I think that's what we get. Uh, after the success of homework and their first uh, and their work as a live act, Tomas and Guimon faded from the public spotlight, working on their solo projects and such. We talked about that last week. Sometime in 1998, they began noodling around with tracks for a next uh, for the next Daft Punk album. They didn't quite know what they were um, interested in yet, uh, but they started tooting around with stuff at the time. Tomas said, it's pretty wide open. There's no formula to our music, but we almost always start by working separately in our studios and coming up with ideas uh, on our own. While most of the music was recorded and produced in Tomas' studio, Guimon had created his own home space to work on music as well. He said, I have a lot of the same equipment and instruments. The main difference is uh, that Tomas has much more effects and mixing stuff and things. Um so, uh, yeah, uh, around this time, uh, they were each putting out Roulette and Cry to More Things. Um, 
but uh, at a certain point they would hit on something and they would back pocket it, uh, which is very interesting to me. The tracks they released on their own, many of which we heard last week, were more raw and less polished than a typical Daft Punk track. Uh, I could not find any instance where either talked about the process of choosing to move forward with an idea as a solo song as opposed to saving something to expand on as a future Daft Punk track, but that would be uh, fascinating to learn about. So if anybody has ever heard anything about that, uh, please in, uh, email us at info at alive2021.com. Guimon said at the time, there is no specific rule. One of us might start on his own. The important thing is that we're musically on the same wavelength. So, so you two write more music and, and perform more music than I do. What do you think about saving something as opposed to, to bringing it to the table? I feel like you, I feel like a lot of the um, Cry to More stuff and the Relay stuff are like <clears throat> very sample heavy, like wholesale, yeah. a full bar of a sample that's looped for six minutes in both instances. And it feels like both of those are just like, this is a fun groove for the club. Okay. Whereas it feels like with Daft Punk, it's like they have a kernel of an idea that they are going to build into a composition. Yeah. You yeah. Know? So like real songs. The, the, uh, while these songs are more, are do involve samples. They're, they're doing a much more. They're cutting it up yeah. in more interesting ways, and they're finding ways to make something more wholly unique than something that might have been released it's, as a Cry to More track or whatever. Yeah, it's also it's weird to think about like the idea of putting a song in your back pocket because I don't think it's as conscious as people would 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 you know when people talk about that. I don't I don't think it's as conscious of a thing. I mean like like even today, like today I was I showed you guys some stuff I was working on uh when, when we got here. Um and the 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 origin for my starting point was a guitar riff that I really liked about 4 years ago or something that that like I recorded and I never did anything with and like that's where I started and now I have a track with no guitar at all. And like in yeah. my mind that's a back pocket groove or whatever the hell that I, I never touched before. But like, is it consciously that I don't think so, but yeah. I, I think it's just like, I don't know the idea of, of, of working on something over years, you know, like, like an album, like discovery. I think that there's going to be a million little things that so, are something from another project. I yeah, would imagine they, they are not constantly working on discovery over these two and a half years. Right. And they'll talk about it where if they're in songwriting mode, they might listen to 40, 50 records a day and just be sitting there with it blaring, listening for a snippet in there that could be something. And most of it, it never leads anywhere. But there's some sort of magic moment where they're siphling through all of these records where they say, hold on, stop. And that and very quickly from there that a song can can become something. Yeah. And I think it's mu- a much more quicker turnaround uh, to something like a Roulette or Cry to More track where with the Daft Punk stuff, they are so f- hyper-focused on the granular specificity yeah. that they're going to cut those samples up so much more and layer them with so much more stuff 
that um, that it does take a, a little bit longer to compile all those things. And, and we'll get to, to samples and things like that later. And I, I think there's also something to be said for the idea of, of, of a concept album as well. Like, like that almost to me feels like an added criteria uh, for self requirement of, of creation or something like that. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like it's not just a good song we're trying to make. We're trying to make, a good concept album that is cohesive to itself. I think that's a whole nother level of, of a challenge. So I, I think that like, you know, I, I guess the, uh, the amount that things are refined are, are not only on a, a track to track level, but on a, an album level as well, which like they, we don't know until this album comes out that Daft Punk is amazing at a concept album. You know, we don't, we don't know that as the truth yet until mm -hmm. they do this. Um, so, so that's, that's a, a wonderful thing to look at as well. Not too far from that point. And I mean this half jokingly and half seriously, but like Crydemore and Roulette are music that people would make and discovery is an album made by robots. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Like I, I truly feel right. like I, I, I do not think it's, we, it's outside of the realm of possibility that they are like, yeah, this is robot music and yeah. this is not. So part, you know? part of our part of uh, I'm sure we'll get into it. But part of our prep for this weekend, uh, you guys out there, is we literally went in the woods and turned Discovery up as loud as we could and listened to it once while just talking about it together. And then later on, once the sun went down, once the sun went down, we did a whole listen to it again sweaty as loud as we can. Sweaty listen. dance party. So There's, we did we did I, the whole study. This, but was the sweaty dance one under a bridge? It was under a bridge. To this under a bridge by a river. <laughs> yes, maybe we very did. loud. I don't. I'm not sure. I would assume now if I ever have the opportunity to meet Tomas Orgiman, I would be shocked to find out that this wasn't meant to be listened to under, under a, bridge a bridge by a river. Uh, <laughs> true story. They're gonna get that. True, true story. We really did listen to this under a bridge by a river but i remembered myself saying um this weekend while we were talking about it while we were listening in the woods i was uh, you know we were, we're sitting by a river in one of our favorite places uh in 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 mid to northern michigan here and and i i remember having the thought that up until discovery it, it, everything that daft punk has released it, it feels like French touch. It feels like you know that French house music, and this, it 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 has all of the corniness of, but but with with the rock star yeah. attitude, the so, guitar riffs they put into some of these songs. Darren it's, mentioned ugh. Darren mentioned that it was a, like a concept album. It becomes a sci-fi epic with the movie that we're going to talk about next week, Interstellar. Yeah. What they were trying to tap into conceptually, stylistically, and musically is a certain level of nostalgia for their childhood decade from like the mid 70s to the mid 80s. Can we try to recreate that feeling of magic and wonder that we had as kids when we discovered the movies that we loved and, I and the sounds that we loved and and those those things that. Uh, we watched without any jadedness or without any cynicism yeah. uh, as we got, we got older and learned more about music and, and the movie industry and stuff. Can we make something that taps into the, the wonder that we felt when we found music that we loved when it, we were 8, 10 years old? It really feels like – it feels like they, they, they took this, this unironic love for, for this – 
I, I, this, this, <laughs> uh, and, and, and they, they somehow layer on this just rock star attitude that comes yeah. through throughout the whole album and throughout the whole album. They are as removed from 1975 as we are from discovery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. 90, 98, they're working on the album. Yeah. 75 was 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. That's how far removed they are. So, from that. so nuts. if you wanted to tap into the wonder bit of 20 years ago, we're You'd talking about one more time. <laughs> you know oh what I mean? <laughs> That's Whoa. crazy. Oh, Whoa! The way they talk about They're Barry like, Manilow, we are talking about one more time. Yeah. <laughs> I've always said Tomas Bengalter is my Barry Manilow. <laughs> I've always said that. I've always said Guimans by Barry Manilow. <laughs> but I think it is. It's like what they did, and and you know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw some extrapolation in here every once in a while. I'm sure, but like I think that what this album has is the confidence to be its own thing, and I feel like that up until this point. The boys were the best at a genre that is established. And yes, they are part of, of, of the, the collective mind pushing it to the forefront uh, in, in, in that scene. Yeah. But what this album has is confidence that you gain only from doing what they did yeah. to become who they are and who they want to be, which is fucking robots. So one of the first things that they really wanted to be with the next album is collaborators. Yes. Uh, so uh, the first thing they do uh, when they start to get ready for a new Daft Punk album is uh, reach out to Romanthony. And they they had opened the doors. Romanthony, I'm assuming, is Anthony Moore, credited as the writer. Yes. Anthony Moore, yeah. a New Jersey native, a house music producer, singer, um, and uh, somebody on the underground here in America that was on the forefront of this kind of sound. Uh, and they he is one of their heroes. He's mentioned in the in the album teachers and they are honestly flabbergasted that he's not a massive celebrity over here. And, uh, they wanted to work with him and they also thought that they had a chance to, um, uh, introduce him, uh, in a bigger way to an American audience. One of the things that JDB says in Daft Punk Unchained, which is very interesting to me is that one more time specifically, uh, and uh, the sound, the style of music, uh, and their work with a an actual American producer of this music, Romanthony, introduced Americans to a sound that African Americans invented. And he's like, how is it that Americans needed these two French kids to teach them about their own cultural music? And it, it is, uh, it, it's... So it was it, it was very important for these these guys to work with a couple of their uh, her, heroes. They tried to get it done with homework, uh, but they were they were just kids. Um, so um, homework comes out that opens the door for them with Romanthony specifically. We talked about how he released a track on Roulette, and then they started working on this. And um, Tomas told uh, Remix Magazine. Uh, we wanted to work with Romanthony and Todd Edwards on our first album. They didn't know who we were at the time. So it was very difficult to convince them. When we met Romanthony in Miami, he told us he was very into what we were doing, which made us very happy. So 
I think that was a, a big in for them with a lot of these people, uh, uh, with a lot of these producers and musicians was the WMC that we've talked about, the Winter Music Conference. Yeah. That's where they meet Romanthony. And by this point, the boys had already flatly rejected offers from megastars like Madonna, Janet Jackson, George Michael, etc. to collaborate. Instead, three of their biggest influences, Romanthony, Todd Edwards, and DJ Sneak, who are all mentioned in that track, Teachers, that we talked about, all lended a hand in some way to Discovery. Said Guimon... What's odd is that Romanthony and Todd Edwards are not big in the United States at all. Their music had a big effect on us. The sound of their productions, the compression, the sound of the kick drum, Romanthony's voice, the emotion, the soul. It's all how we want to wanted to sound today. Because they mean something to us, it was much more important for us to work with them than these other big stars. Which, can you imagine being Romanthony, not really having made a name for yourself in America, and finding out that these kids who said no to Madonna were like, we want to work with you. You're the person we want to work with. It's crazy. Whatever it means, um, the two big hits from this record at the time, the two biggest yeah. radio charting hits, are the Romeo Anthony song and the Todd Edwards song. Yeah, Whether they saved their best work for these guys or in collaboration with these guys, they produced the best music. Because we see I think that. It's, and, I think and, it's collab like specifically – Todd Edwards, the Todd Edwards track is a full on collaboration. Yeah, like they wrote is. and produced and made that song together. And you can hear Todd Edwards in it. Yeah. And romantic. Yeah. And it's face to face. Yes. Face to face. Um, you for, see, I mean, you see that on random access memories too. Yeah. The big tracks oh, yeah. out of collaborations. Those guys, I mean, their other big stuff is, is like with the weekend and, and on Yeezus. Yeah. I, I give them a lot of credit for being collaborators with each other. They're some of the best collaborators in yeah. pop music, I think large. They, like, um, I think it really solidified for me when I heard their Panda Bear song. Yeah. Because that's a Daft Punk song, but that's a fucking Animal Collective song, yeah. too. So they they are really, really good at, at bringing somebody in that they respect, saying yes to their ideas, and letting their sound f- fill out the Daft Punk sound. So that like that that song like you can hear uh, what he, what Panda Bear brought to that song and same with like the Todd Edwards song yeah. they're they're really good at letting these collaborators breathe within the song as well yeah I would be interested to know um, and if any maybe you have information on this Andy I would be interested to know um, if the collaborations were earlier on in the the production so site. yeah I, this specifically these are the so like I said the first thing they go is to Romanthony yeah. Uh, and, and we'll get to that, but I, I mean, I'm these, just, these are too long, uh, too long, and one more time are the first two songs written for this record. See, I would, I, I, I would already posit this opinion that I bet if they don't do those collaborative uh, collaborative things at the beginning, that we don't get an album as good as yeah. the one that we get. So yeah. sometime in '98, they finally got their wish. Romantic and the Boys started work on two tracks. Too Long, the closing track on the album, was born out of these sessions. The boys consider it a transition between the sound of homework and what would eventually become Discovery. Tomas said, Too Long was among the first tracks we did for Discovery, and we consider it proper house music as the rules define it. It was a starting point for us because then we knew we didn't want to do 14 more house tracks. We took it from there, having the whole plot and map of the album without going to the same place twice. 
Uh, he went on, homework was very much a manifesto for electronic music at the time and a rough and raw thing that was more about sound production and textures and a very physical dimension. With Discovery, we played with the new forms and song structures and vocals as well, but it's pretty much the same thing, only with chords and harmonies and layers of frequencies. So they took these ideas that they had learned and their the um uh, their philosophies of creating house music that is just kind of like walls of interesting songs colliding into a danceable beat. And then they, they made, they used that stuff to make actual like songs and music. And that was what, that was kind of their philosophy going into discovery. I think their definition of, of what constitutes a house track is different than i think we have now because things like one more time yeah that is a house track and house tracks yeah. now are structured like pop songs because of this album but at the time their definition of yes. what a house track was is, is a 10, 10 minute, minutes a of 10 noodling. minute ballad like list like we'll get to too long but it is a 10 minute song that starts from the most minimal idea possible and builds to a grandiosity. That's their idea of a house track. And that's what a house song was in the nineties, right? Yeah. They took those things and made a three minute song. And you're right. Like, like does one more time sound like something from the radio in the nineties or, or 2000? No, but it does sound like something from the radio now, 20 years later, because of what they did with this. And record. It, it's weird that, I mean, we had, crossover house hits right we had inner city we had yeah. like you know show me love by robin s we had these tracks but those were those were songs i don't know structured Groove like is pop in the songs heart. grooves in the heart <laughs> yeah. they they bring a different they, they both bring the structure of a pop song and the sonic qualities of a pop song what would you tracks uh, we'll get to we're, we're gonna get to the history and everything but i'm interested right now as we're talking about these mega hits, what well, let's play Prices Right, closest without going over. What do you think? One more time, charted at on the Billboard Hot 100. It was number one on the dance track. They had two number one dance chart um, singles. One more time and face to face on this. It is. What do you think there on the Billboard Hot 100? Where do you think One More Time went? I feel like it's not as as. Uh as high as you would think. I, I feel like this was I'm, not an incredible <clears throat> smash in that I'm just going to take a, a shot in the dark here and guess like 65 or something, something way higher. I, I, it deserves, I think uh, my guess is that it should be lower, yeah. but my, my I'm guessing high because like when they're working with the weekend, yeah. that's a number one song. That is their, right, that right? is their first billboard chart. One number one hit. I would their say their last thing they put out <laughs> one more time. I, I would say, 16 60 it charted it tied around the world with at 61 oh wow so it tied around the world uh, yeah Fox, you, you win prices right rules <laughs> Damn it. so it yeah uh which is what it's, it's uh, well we around the world up. and one more time both peaked at 61 and stardust was at 62 yeah. so tomas is like hit, he can't he's like stardust was 62 yeah i was gonna say the other thing that I'm he's thinking hitting that about, barry bonds <laughs> yeah yeah the other thing i'm thinking and and that being said homework sold Two million copies. I mean, but wild, like right? here, here, that was let a me, big. Let me really quick. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna list a couple things that were chart, uh, the top, top chart uh, songs in 2001. We're talking about "Hanging by a Moment" by Lifehouse, Jesus "Fallen" Christ. by Alicia Keys, <laughs> "All of You," uh, "All for You" by Janet Jackson, "Drops of Jupiter" by Train. <laughs> so, like, this is what. The world is listening they, to That's now. what the world wants. Um, I mean, Tops of Jupiter. I'm real. Yeah. J-Lo and Ja Rule had a song. Um, 
Yeah, I What's mean, fast? Lenny Kravitz is on here. Some Destiny's yeah. Child. There's nothing. So Daft Punk that has is... incredible crossover power because they're gigantic around the world. No pun intended. Yeah, I want. I want to know what train charted on in the dance tracks. But, then, motherfucker. Yeah, the, other, right? the other thing I'm thinking about when we're talking about like them collaborating yeah. with Romanthony and stuff, they understand the trajectory of their success at this point. Homework was a smash, and their singles were huge. Right. And then in between Homework and this album. He does Stardust. Yeah. So he know like he's I'm, getting I, it. The he... pressure is immense, and he knows they're gonna follow their interests. But like he knows that when yeah. he has this song in his back pocket that he's gonna have Romanthony on. When they uncork this, they know it's oh, gonna yeah. be huge. So, um, uh, and we'll get I I we'll get to that interestingly. But that the build on too long, the runtime, the song structure, when you boil it down to its elements, that is a proper house track by any definition. Although the end produ- product is certainly sleeker and shinier than anything that they had produced up until this point. The other track that comes out of these early sessions was, of course, One More Time. It was completed nearly two and a half years be- before Discovery w- was released, meaning it sat on a shelf for Years. It is hard to imagine the boys could have known what a global impact this specific song would have had, but I'm confidently they knew they had a hit on their hands, and it must have been excruciating What's, to just sit there waiting to let it know, go out. And they were playing other stuff. They were yeah, DJing this entire time. Yeah, they could they have, they could have spun this. It's crazy to think about the fact that, like, again, one more time to sit is, there with is, that right. with that song but, on the on the shelf. But for one two more and a half time years. is 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 you know a, a world changing song when it's released, and they created that two and a half years before it was released. So they were even two and a half yeah. years further ahead than <laughs> yeah. we think I, that they were. I, when I make something I'm excited about, yeah. all I want to do, yeah. you know, like I'm working on music right now. I was right. very excited to go up north all I and do is dance, play music. Dance, dance, dance. <laughs> <laughs> all I want to do is like, all I wanted to do when I was working on stuff was like, oh, I can't wait to show my yeah. friends yeah. this. Yeah. It's, it's a, a, a difficult thing I would, to produce something incredible I and be like, I'm going to sit on that for a long time. I can't imagine that they didn't show people right i'm like, sure I'm they're sure tooting they around with todd edwards or whatever and they're like todd look yeah, listen to they're, this they're, every all their friends are here but, but what's but, surprising like, to me though is they didn't they didn't make this a, a single that they gave to their dj friends or something you know they didn't yeah, do this that. wasn't a white label like, this wasn't know, in their sets no we know that white label releases be, I, and I'm stuff like that are, you know are, like, are the way to do things then. so tomas stops djing uh late 90s early 2000s what I would love to know the first time that this got played in front of people was it after they released it publicly? Did they did they play it in a club at some point? I, I don't know. That's lost. In the I don't sands think of time. they play. I don't, I don't think know. they play this. Yeah, I don't think they play that song until they start getting ready for 2006, 2007. So in the past, Daft Punk had worked with talk boxes, vocorders, auto tune to warp the sound of their own voice. Uh, Giman talked about it. He goes, the toy-like aspect of the vocorder makes us laugh. We often forget the importance of playful and humor, the uh, playful, playful and su- uh, humorous side to our music. Uh, so that's funny to me. That they're just like, it's funny to he- make them to make a voice robot. That's funny. Uh, working with a renowned vocalist, the boys went back to what they knew and added a digital sheen to Romanthony's beautiful voice. This might be one of the most significant decisions uh, to the sound of pop music for the last two decades. And initially, people were fascinated by the question of why. In interview after interview from around this time, journalists ask why they altered Romanthony's voice, what Romanthony thought about the effect, whether it was a gimmick, 
uh, all this stuff. It is funny to hear so many music industry insiders express utter bafflement, bafflement uh, by something that is practically ubiquitous with pop music now. Like the the fact that they would do that to an actual singer's voice, they people were like, "Why?" <laughs> it's cra- I mean, you can hear why that belongs on the album. Yeah. When yeah. I was I was in a hardcore band in uh, high school, and there was a time when a lot of people were doing heavier music mixed with more electronic elements, and every band was buying a hardware rack version of AutoTune that you were taking with you to the show. So we would go play the Hayloft in Mount Clemens and plug our hardware rack <laughs> AutoTune for live <laughs> using AutoTune because that uh, was right. so so powerful and important then yeah and you know that was 16 years after this came out yeah animal collective made it sure that if you were in an indie band in like 2012 you had yeah absolutely (laughs) (laughs) so um at the time the boys said romanthony loved the sound of his voice on the record and they defended their, their use of the new technology to achieve a new exciting sound at the time tomas said a lot of people complain about musicians using autotune. It reminds me of the late 70s when musicians in France tried to ban the synthesizer. What they did. <laughs> <laughs> we would not be here if that happened. I know. Could you imagine? <laughs> Just people in the streets with picket signs. I wrote like... a terrible play called What If Guitars and Skateboards Were yeah. Illegal? I would absolutely watch a musical about the synthesizer like, becoming illegal. Footloose, but it's, yeah, the, it's synthesizer the synthesizer. That would be incredible. I have to go sneak away to my synthesizer. That's very powerful. The quote continues, what they didn't see uh, was that you could use those tools in a new way instead of just replacing the uh, instruments that came before. We love to be able to use instruments the way we want to. Criticizing the vocorder is like asking bands in the 60s, why do you want to use an electric guitar? It's just a tool. No big deal. Creation is interaction. It's just music. It's just entertainment. Hell yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's great. It's it's every single generation. uh, Like the people before the vocorder were upset about the the grunge thing. And before that, they were like, like think about what Bob Dylan had went through when he introduced an electric guitar. And think about what Elvis went through when he swung his hips on TV. It's like every single generation. It's like. Uh, that the older folks are like, my music was better and this new thing sucks. And it's just the same, it's the same cycle over and over and again. And this sound is fundamentally dated. You know, when you hear like, yeah. uh, you know, Cher singing, like, I believe in life after love, that mm-hmm. auto tune thing does sound of its time and, and dated. But I like the attitude and the way he's talking when it's like, hey, no, there's a new toy. Let's yeah. play with it. And yeah. you have fun with it for a while. And if it becomes passe, you'll move on to another funner, <laughs> yeah. weirder well, toy. And, and what's really crazy to think about too is like a lot of people will associate um, auto-tune with like T-Pain or whatever. I mean, sure. that's not till like 2005, six, yeah. seven is when, <laughs> when, when T-Pain's coming out with We spent with time with stuff. T-Pain at Electric Forest. We sure did. My, our friend Alex gave uh, uh, hung out with him and gave him a tattoo, right? Yeah. He said Alex Mites was very funny. Yeah. he's uh, T-Pain said our friend Alex was very funny. <laughs> hey. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to put that is a poll quote on our show <laughs> our quotes our friend unquotes alex is very funny quote t-pain <laughs> alive 2021 that's great um slap it on a shirt so uh i think it's also help really healthy to hear a, a, 
artist of this level say this is just entertainment. Yeah, it is. That like that is that's cool. This is just meant to make people feel good. It doesn't have to be deeper than that. And I think that goes back to them, their childhood thing, like uh, listening to music without the cynicism or critique. I I think that is. I think that is a thread that runs through their entire career, yeah. all the stuff they do in every medium. And I think that is something we can probably revisit with a live 2007. It's like, this is just fun. Let's yeah. give people the funnest night of their lives. Yeah. Yeah. And they did. I, I really, I, I, yeah. I got to take that to heart. That's an incredible way to so view what you do. All of this leads to the question or an interesting point about discovery and something that in retrospect is hard to wrap your head around considering the album's place and the pantheon of house music history. Some of these questions came from a place of true confusion because there was a lot of folks that didn't really like discovery right away. This is Pete Tong. I think they lost a few people then in terms of like the, the people that just loved them for being this dirty, messed up. One more time. First album was a homage to their experience and, and their love for house music. And I think the second album was the beginning of them saying, well, actually, this is the kind of music we really, this is what's in us, in us that we want to get out. And they started, you know, showing us more their, their, their kind of song, more conventional kind of songwriting, melodic capabilities but their reference points have always been rooted in very kind of um like guilty pleasure almost type pop music from the 70s so yeah that's uh that's pete tong uh, talking about the record and it's interesting that there was a lot of people that loved homework that were like what is this yeah we've i mean we've talked about it a couple times and devin said it a few weeks ago my favorite you know my if your favorite house group is Daft Punk in the in the rave in the warehouse and you all of a sudden are like okay here they are the robots on Cartoon Network yeah. like all of this that is that is a big I mean and you know by nature folks you know we, we talked a lot about just like music like music like music um you know, don't be snobby about music, but by nature, I mean, niche musical groups are inherently more snobby about their own music. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, I think, you know, while they um, tap into a, 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 a astronomical level of, of mainstream success with this, I, 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 I can see how they lose a lot of those, you know, niche, niche, you know, house fans. It's, yeah, it's already this. hard to watch your band, like we've said, go from you know, two club kids in this small music scene to that scope and that image, right? Even just the size. Yeah. But the fact that the sound shifts so drastically in what they are admitting is an incredibly cheesy and corny pop direction. Yeah. I I would understand that if you were, you know, 20, if you were older than them or their age, if you were 26, right? They're 26 yeah. ish or whatever when this comes out. If you were 26 and this came your out cool again. warehouse band was suddenly like what? doing this like Barry Manilow yeah. shit, you'd just be like, oh, yeah, that's no, that's stadium that's, music. Yeah. I, I'm busy with whatever dark sounds are going on in the club. Yeah. And you would be justified in doing so at that time. This is. Mm -hmm. This is it wasn't just not for everybody. It wasn't just the kids, though. A Rolling Stone re review from the time said Discovery was muddled, not only in spectrum between uh, not only in the spectrum between serious and jokey, but in its sense of an identity. That's incorrect. That's incorrect. It's completely incorrect. And for fans who had become obsessed with the pure dance bliss, their ability to craft walls of sonic overstimulation instead of adhering to the normal traditional song structures on homework. 
many had a hard time adjusting to this new glitzy sound, but the boys weren't all that interested or didn't care. We're not trying to please everyone. We're not trying to please the people. We just, uh, we always uh, did what we wanted and, uh, and, uh, and that's what we're keeping on doing and we're having a lot of fun doing that. They didn't care. <laughs> they yeah. wanted to do what they wanted. This album is is specific, and it's not for everyone. You yeah. know, I, I can see if you're like, oh, I'm not into the guitar solos and some of the sim- yeah. sillier synth elements. This album is not confused about what it's doing. Absolutely This album not. achieves what it is setting <laughs> it is, out to do perfectly. It is. It, the, it knows exactly what it wants to be. The tone is the perfect amount yeah. of silly and fun and, and recognizing this is entertainment. And um, yeah, exactly. It's not confused at all. So Tomas said, we'll get older and we won't want to do the same thing as discovery or homework. We'll just move on. We'll have different approaches and views that are always evolving. Discovery might surprise house and techno fans who have fixed ideas about what is good and what is bad. This album is a way for us to come back to our childhood. To this age between 5 and 10 where we appreciate music in a naive, innocent way. An age where music is still a personal experience. We delight in sounds and colors, a guitar playing. We allow ourselves to be moved by these things without asking ourselves if they are good or bad taste. The problem with house and techno today is that everything sounds the same. We learned music when we were young and the ultimate value of music for us is being able to make it what we want. An open mind is for a musician a basic rule we like dance music of course but we made discovery with the same uh demand and will to uh uh, with the same demand and will to experiment as homework messing around without trying to find out what connected or didn't connect that's i think that's beautiful yeah that's like a true artist just being in the moment and connect and finding a way to to bring out what's in their brain uh, like onto the record you it's, know it's really cool to, to to hear that right now yeah because it seems like what this album really does is formulate the ideas that we have seen uh, very present behind everything up until this point uh we've touched on oh it's really cool to hear that little snippet there or to see this thing or to see that that's what they were going for here in this video um that they were trying to learn from their past and blah blah, blah. but but it, it really feels like they put on these robots, robot suits, robot suits, robots, the robot suits. <laughs> yeah. They uh, and then uh, and when when March whatever March twelfth, uh, two thousand one, right? March twelfth, two thousand one comes by. This album comes out, and they knew they, they they have formulated a bunch of ideas that they have. I mean, they're young, like you said, they're mm-hmm. twenty six or twenty seven yeah. right now. They have, but but they're at also an age that like. I, I am a big believer that the 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 aging that happens somewhere between 23 and 25 or 26 that is some of the most important age yeah. age aging in creative and professional life. For those of us, you know, we we mm-hmm. uh, out there, you guys, we'll bring up again. We work in a very creative uh, a- atmosphere uh, here in in Detroit, and I personally see a lot of people really get interested in their young 20s and be able to formulate what they're trying to do around that age, 25, 26, because, you know, there's some growth that happens. There's some real adult growth. Um, and it feels like that. It feels like they are rounding out some of ideas, these ideas that they've they've learned and they've in turn taken them and made them their own ideas and said, and this is what we want to make. You know what, what's fascinating to me? And 
I, I I don't know what this translates to for our folks listening to this on the continent. Like they are nostalgic for the seventies and early eighties because that was their experience growing up in Paris. I don't think America had the same type of America is steeped in nostalgia in, in the eighties. We were very nostalgic for think, the fifties. I don't think we, we've ever been as nostalgic for disco right, as these guys as, were. as Europe was. So yeah. like we, we, you know, in the two thousands were nostalgic for new wave 80 stuff. Yeah. We've never had this. We've never been like, Oh, this fun Barry Manilow I think, shit. I don't think that America ever got nostalgic for disco because of how violently it ended right like and, we, and we, we were we like hated yeah we every america had like disco demolition night and we were like fuck that we're done with that we want to do something we won't else even admit this is disco right, right. Like this now this daft punk stuff yeah the, you know house and and all the all the shit is disco yeah but when i try to explain to yeah, a, no, a, a regular sucks. person yeah. that i'm like oh i'm listening to disco they they yeah. resent it, Tune it they, they currently hate disco so there were a lot of acid house heads that heard daft punk transition from the raw sound of homework and didn't understand the choices they were making on discovery this will be a theme throughout daft punk's career they are not interested in stasis they want to build on what they have created and use the knowledge they have gained to push their art in a new creative directions even if uh folks don't understand it they're trying to, to prove the other way around that maybe to the electronic uh, a world that that making a four minutes track uh, is not the norm right now. So people might might say that it's a more traditional format, but it's mm -hmm. not traditional format in electronic music. Mm -hmm. And uh, combining uh, maybe uh, 40 ideas in three minutes, on three minutes 30 is is a completely different approach, mm -hmm. but which has the same uh, will of freedom to break the rules that are existing right now. Mm -hmm. 40 ideas in three minutes. When you break that down and think about the richness of the sound on any individual track on Discovery, you can hear the minuscule attention that they were paying to every second on this album. They were packing so much. In. I mean, we we consciously had this conversation on, uh, on Saturday uh, uh, when we were talking about the album together that um, one of the things that they managed to do is, is, is that, is get the feeling of... You know, uh, uh, something that normally takes 40, 50 minutes to do in a in a in a house set and, and get all of that. Into, I got a quote for this. Yeah. Into a into a, a three or four minute block. Go for it. The songs, a song here, what we're listening to the songs, <laughs> these three minute clips. A song is just a window into the groove. A song is just a window into the groove. That was us sitting next to a river uh, being blown away by this music after the millionth time we've heard it. You know what? A song, it's just, just a, a window, window into the groove. It's a window into the groove. I, don't, I know what that means, and I've had trouble articulating it. It's like this is just a, a minuscule yeah. sample. It's just a, a lens through which you can like enter the groove. I don't know if I'll ever articulate it well enough for everyone like, listening to well, understand, but when groove, I said it, it... The groove is the ethereal fourth dimension yeah. that our brains cannot yeah. yet comprehend. The groove, is, here we the go, groove is three but hours. The groove is a like, nightclub. The groove yeah. is a thing. I, in order to... like, What I really liked about that quote it's and a, that specific conversation that we had, uh, one of the things that we also did this weekend at one point, and, and this is foreshadowing a show from... Uh, it's going to be a couple weeks in the future. We listened to Daft Club. Um, yeah. and, and Daft Club it took that that quote that was funny and, and 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 deep yes but it took that songs are just windows to the groove and it really 
it put on display exactly what you mean yeah. because if, if again if you're a, if you're a Daft Punk fan out there and you don't put Daft uh, Daft Club as an album that you are like just do it just yeah. keep doing it keep listening to that album but you'll see what we mean you can see a different window into these grooves that exist here so oh, it's very uh, cool the to groove see. is like one thing right it's this like the the larger groove yeah. And the groove is also like a, a specific sound, but it is like this big, it's this, you know. The song is right here, but the groove is the out groove here. The groove is out here. The groove is all night. A whole night is a groove. Is night, a whole, you know, a festival can be a groove. Yeah. But uh, I the think song is just one one so little keyhole that you can look through and to find, find the groove. To find harmony and chaos, really. Yeah. If we're talking about what the groove is, it's, it's a harmony um, that emerges from chaos that can be observed by multiple parties or whatever, you know? And that's what we're doing when we listen to this music. So after completing these two tracks with Romanthony, uh, Tomas and Gima knew they wanted to continue to tap into the nostalgia of their youth to build a new sound. Tomas said, personally, the strongest musical memories I have are from when I was five or six years old. You have these through your life, but at this time, there's no notion of hype. You just listen to music because you genuinely enjoy it. In order to make the old new again, they decided to use much of the same tech and recording techniques they had mastered on homework to experiment with different sounds, uh, song structures, and arrangements. While they employed many of the same samplers and synths like the Akai MPC, the EMU SP-1200, the Oberheim DMX, the Lindrum, they also wanted to expand the idea of laying down their own tracks and warping them to their liking, basically sampling unique sounds they had created on guitars and keyboards and compressing and warping them until they were unrecognizable. Which, I'm going to jump in because the, the, the funny thing about that statement right there is that will shape music for... Uh, then until now, so where the, where the idea of making your own unique sounds and sampling them, that, I mean, that's Ableton. I mean, that's, yeah. that's here's, what EDA, electronic dance music is made by doing nowadays. Here's, here's Tomas talking about it. We didn't want to do the same style of things that we used to, mm -hmm. but we maybe wanted to take benefit from having learned the technology mm -hmm. and using the same technology yeah. rather than at the same time doing stylistically something different yeah. and doing and relearning a new technology every time. So it was a way to... Especially because we maybe express less things with the first album rather than even focusing on the sound production and mm -hmm. the physical side of it mm -hmm. and saying, okay, we, we use the same kit of, 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 of uh, technology, mm -hmm. but in order to maybe express something mm -hmm. and, yeah. and, and express emotions and, and say something and maybe, and maybe uh, which is maybe the difference between homework and discovery, even in terms of the meaning of the title of the track. Mm. Very cool. Um, like we've said in the past, Guimon is very soft-spoken unless he's particularly excited about a specific subject. And basking in the release of Discovery, which went on to sell more than 2.5 million copies worldwide, Guimon was excited to let people know just how involved uh, the recording process was on this record. He really opened up in a Mix Online uh, magazine article about the making of Discovery in what may be one of the most technically revealing interviews either of the boys have ever given. So we're going to we're gonna dive into this article uh, a little bit here because uh, he uh, Gimon has some really cool things to say about how this album specifically was recorded. So he told them, Every track has been worked really precisely. Every track is a mixture of many different experiments and tricks. It was much more complicated making this than homework. It was really like jewelry work working precisely so many different production techniques even one in one track 
in the interview, Guimond says that he is usually on the guitar while Tomas plays more with the piano and bass, but ultimately it doesn't matter who's on what instrument. They're running instruments through so many effects, filters, and samples that it is ultimately hard to tell what any sound comes, uh, what any specific sound is, what instrument comes from, or, or, or really what any of these sounds where they originate from. Uh, they're like the boy, boy, the boys are even confused about it. Um, he said. Around this, we play all the instruments, which are mainly vintage keyboards and guitars. So it's a mixture of a few samples and us playing around. We don't uh, we don't always use the original sounds of the keyboards or the guitars because we put so many effects or distortions on them so that uh, sometimes you think it's a guitar, but maybe it's not. Um, sometimes we use an instrument in a way that it was never created for. Some people might say you're doing something wrong using an effect like that, but we always try to do different tricks and techniques that are maybe a little weird or a bit wild for a usual sound engineer. But by experimenting with crazy ideas, you find some crazy sounds <laughs> to get homogeny. Uh, we put a sample on a sample or we play guitar and keyboard parts and then we try to sample and resample. So it's just like layer after layer after layer after effect after filter to the point where uh, I love that. Like uh, I love that quote, right? By experimenting with crazy ideas, you find crazy sounds. I love that. Yeah, I, I really – we'll talk about this throughout the episode as we talk about the tunes themselves. Gimon has said a few times – that they played instruments on parts you think are samples. I think to some extent that is disingenuous. I think we have uncovered samples that are not credited and that they say were played over. Like that's yeah. happened more in the last 10 years than it did then. Yeah. But I, I truly believe that like they were sampling things so granularly yeah. for so long and processing it so much that if you're listening to some like, single guitar chug sound yeah and they're trying to identify what they did to that yeah i don't you know if you just if you spend enough time playing with the same three minutes of music it becomes like something brand new something brand new and i, I think i i think folks who are not as interested in the production of this music can often be dismissive of the idea of samples yeah as being like, this oh, is, that's someone else. It's like, it so, doesn't matter if it's a sampler, if they played it themselves. Yeah. It's, There's a it's, couple, it's like, own thing. A, uh, harder, Better, Faster, Stronger is a much more traditional sample song. Yeah. And we'll get to that. But other other examples of, of sampling stuff on this record are like so removed from the original idea. So, so around this time, Daft Punk was talking about uh, the art of bricolage a, light, a, a lot. They love this word, bricolage. It's a French word, and there's not really an English translation, but roughly it means building something out of found materials. Uh, Where do uh, we get the term collage from, right? Yeah, uh, maybe. Yeah, yeah it is. I think collage. It is. Yeah, yep. bricolage. So it's like a sock, like turning a sock into a puppet or like using different bits of material and stuff to make a wreath for your door, yeah. bricolage. And they, they're obsessed with bricolage at this point. Bricolage, in Daft Punk's cr uh, case, was creating art out of found sounds. With Discovery, they were interested in taking that uh, a step past their roots uh, as sample musicians and adding more to it. For example, there is a sample in Digital Love taken from George Duke's song, I Love You More. Uh, and that's the base of that song, turning it into a bricolage track. But... Uh, as they constructed the bridge, they wanted to draw inspiration from the band Supertramp. 
Instead of finding the perfect sample from a a super tramp song and mixing it into digital digital love, Guimon says, we didn't sample super tramp, but we had the original Wurlitzer piano that they used, so we thought it would be more fun to have their original instrument and mess around with it and try to recreate their sound. So that's really interesting too. I I was trying to articulate this while we were listening to this by the river and under the river (laughs) this weekend, and I'm still having trouble figuring out what it means but i've often thought that like if you are a rock band and you're going to write a song with your guitars and your bass and your drums it feels like you sit down with nothing and you construct outward until there is a song with both homework and discovery it feels like this like you know like the the inverse of that like 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 a an upside down pyramid it's just it's sourcing all of this stuff and all of these sounds and just refining it to a single granular point. These samples, these sounds, the way they play with them, it doesn't feel like sitting down with nothing and and writing a rock song. It feels like sourcing just an immense amount of stuff and just refining it like coal into a diamond. I think it's really interesting to point out the fact that how – how focused on the granular specifics they were of this record. So just um, um, thinking about that, there's a guy named Mitchell Feinberg that they went to to create the cover of this. Everybody knows it's the black cover with the Daft Punk logo in like a shiny font. Yeah. That is not a digitally created photo. They they went to Mitchell Feinberg and they said, we want this to have texture. We want it to be real. And he he created that structure out of a, a chroma, chromatic acrylic. Wow. That's that is a real photo. He's, he's credited in the uh, the liner notes. Uh, liquid metal, liquid photos. metal photos. Yeah, it's very funny. And he told this story after they broke up on Instagram, how he's like that. And, and it kind of went viral. Like everybody just assumes that that's a, a a digital creation. Right. That's a real structure that he built out of out of a, a chromed acrylic, and he took that photo. And that's like that's incredible. that's the amount of detail that they are concerned with. Yeah. Nobody can look at that photo and tell that it's a real built thing, but they know. It's the same thing with like Giorgio talking and about the microphones. how he talks about how. As you go through that song, it's a, it's a auditory biography, Giorgio by Maroder. And as he goes through his career, he's using microphones from different eras. He starts with a microphone from the 40s because he's talking about when he's a kid. And he, and he uses a 50s and 60s and 70s as he goes on. And the sound engineer is like, yeah, you're right, Giorgio. Nobody's going to fucking hear the difference. It doesn't matter. But they know. They yeah. hear it because they are so and it's, it's so a, tuned into the specifics. It's a testament to to – Making the product you want because it's what you want to make, not making something for how it's received. And I think that's important for us to keep revisiting. Um, I wanted to, to mention a couple things about sampling again because I was thinking about it. And, and I think it does deserve us hammering home a little bit um, the way that Daft Punk samples uh, again. Um, you know, thinking of each one of their samples, not like 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 I 
think of like like in a lot of hip hop songs, like the Isley Brothers are, are sampled by by, by, yeah. by everybody. But you know, like when Dr. Dre samples the Isley Brothers or whatever, that's the beat of the song mostly. Yeah. It's a section of, of 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 sixteen bars of the Isley Brothers just looped and and pitched a little bit, and that's the framework. What we're talking about with with Daft Punk with with homework and discovery is essentially. They're creating their own piano keys, and instead of a tone that registers to a, a string in the piano, it's it's they're taking it's dozens it's, it's of a, a single note that they have dozens of they have created bars, yeah, sixteenth yeah. bar note. But the other thing is, I I don't I don't see a semantic difference between taking two full measures of someone's song and adding a little thing to it, or chopping it up like their thing is they collaborate when right. they, when they have Nile Rogers himself in the studio, They're he does his Nile thing. Rogers. They're yeah. sampling Nile Rogers. Yeah. Like it does. If, if you just, I, I don't see a semantic difference to, I, I want to noodle around yeah. with this stuff. I like and add shit to it. Yeah. I understand why you can't do that for money reasons. And if you are interested in divvying up what creativity means by what percentage of what you add to a song, yeah. which I think is the incorrect view of, of, yeah. you know, whether you chop I, up stuff like Todd Edwards crazy or you yeah. take two be- measures. Like I want you know, it just on the record. We like sampling is an art and we, we love it. And they're the people, they're the folks that don't understand this music that take the other view. We are not those people. We love sampling, no matter if it's this, yeah. this or there, there's, all art borrows from others, like especially this far down the line. Uh, there's nothing brand new anymore. All art is is being inspired by something before it, and and, and this is just a specific way that that certain folks are inspired by and the past. I think also like okay, like I'm gonna use furniture here. I take a tree. I make it into a piece of furniture. I take an old piece of furniture. I make it into a new piece of furniture. I make take that and I make it into a picture frame. Like at what point is it no longer the thing it was? Right. And you know, is that, you know, you know, do I credit the the first person who designed a chair for, you know, inspiring me to make my own chair? I mean, I think that like for some reason, people's brains can work in the, the clay of, of, of learning from other people and being in, but, but when we're talking about, sounds and auditory waves and and learning for some reason it's just harder for people to accept it as an it's art. the money thing if yeah. there yeah. were no if if people did not have like money involved in it if it were not yeah. about creative control and copyright and stuff you know they're talking about like oh the the vocoders an instrument we want to play with the wurlitz or whatever if you view every song that's ever been written in humanity as fair game as an instrument for you to make stuff yeah it's an incredible pantheon yeah. of stuff you get to but work with. I also with. do before I do want to point out also that there are uh there has been folks out there who approach this style of art with a little more dishonesty and are trying to to rip things off from other people. Yeah. And I think that that is that is a separate thing. That is a separate thing and I don't think that there's any element of what um our favorite artists are are doing that yeah. has any malicious intent uh whatsoever. Yeah. So, uh, of course, uh, also uh, compression is still an incredibly important part of their sound, a carryover from that French house stuff they were producing in the late 90s. Even so, they were still using the same Alessis 3630 for Discovery, which retailed for about 300 bucks. So, uh, Guimond said... And still... 
yeah. is it's less expensive now than it was. It's then. It, it, it's everything like, else has gone up in price except com- that compression is an important part of the thing. And they didn't they Gimon says of it. The one thing uh, uh, the one we used uh, uh, the most is one of the cheapest ones on the market. It's really funny. The bricolage thing. Sometimes you don't have to have the most expensive equipment to make good music. That's cool. Every so they the other thing that they use and we'll talk about it in some of the tracks is uh this this phase shifter that is was worth a fair amount of money then is still now even though it's an outdated piece of hardware is worth near a thousand dollars and hard to find a lot of the stuff they used has gone up in value or retained its value it's very expensive stuff even though it's you can do it all digitally now their compressor is truly one of the only yeah. pieces of equipment that you could go buy right now. It's like 50 bucks. <laughs> yeah. And everything else has gone up in value since then. It's really wild because it was That's such an incredible. I mean, the, you can view the compressor as the glue that yeah. holds a lot of these sounds yeah. together. Um, not only was the music meticulously constructed, it was also in some places structurally different than the stuff that they had done before there's also an undeniably uh there is also undeniably more vocal production on this record than the last which was a challenge for the disco boys tomas says there was also this desire to work with voices we wanted a mixture between the body and harmony uh and this is him talking about the challenges of getting better at adding vocals to the mix the most difficult part in making the album was to record vocals most of the music we're doing before was instrumental and we had done some production with vocals before but very few and uh, one of our challenge we wanted for this album is to make some songs so making and producing the songs the way we wanted it to sound was a hard thing and it took a very long time I don't know much about recording music, um, but it's it's interesting to me that the vocals were so much more of a challenge than get laying down anything else. That's the uh, so they we'll talk about it when we get to Ram, but they refer to Ram as their first studio album because it's the first it time is. they it recorded it in the studio, studio yeah. right? All of the stuff they're producing is bedroom stuff, right. right? All of these synthesizers and drum machines and shit. As soon as you have a microphone. All of a sudden, the room you're in matters. When you when you turn on the microphone, if you're in your bedroom, you can hear that you're oh, in a bedroom. Oh, I see. Yeah. So it's like all of a sudden it matters that they're you're just, in a vocal booth. They're plugging shit into a computer yeah. and, and buzzing out whatever right straight yeah. in. Microphone-wise, you're soon picking. As you, yeah, as soon yeah. as you have to sing into it, yeah. it's like, oh, you can hear that they're recording in a room as small as their house. Another side of that, too. I, I'm somebody who's always had trouble with lyrics and music because I, I, I am somebody who personally, I, I, I can create the mood I want with the noises. And once I'm trying to attach a directive via words that, that people will take away, I find it very difficult to, to, to add that layer because it, it's often very difficult i think for an artist to say here's this mood i've crafted if you work song then add lyrics uh there are some people who start with lyrics and then they add song you know and i'm lucky for them that that's how their brain works <laughs> mine doesn't uh and, and and i would imagine that what we hear the bo- about the boys here that, that they probably work the other direction as well where they establish their mood with the music and then i would imagine they would add lyrics after I that. again they wrote i wrote around know. the lyrics to around the world 
years before they got years size. <laughs> but years I guess the, my point is like I, I, know I can mean, see that being a, a a sticking point for musicians a lot yeah. of folks yeah. who end up um, being you know lyricless EDM artists they end up that way because I, I would imagine they feel like they've crafted the mood that they want the without any yeah words. the texture is or so, so incredible often, and so often and you know so often it's just an ethereal you know, call to, you know, like whatever, like I think yeah. of like the song, like where that song faded, you know, baby, I'm yeah. wasted, whatever the hell, you know, it's yeah. just, it's words that you can get behind in that atmosphere yeah. that you don't sung need, in a way. You don't that, need much lyrically right, from but, any of this music, but you That's do. It's very, I mean, it's, it's, it's lyrics can really ruin the mood you've crafted. And I think yeah. if it's the wrong words or said in the wrong way, you have, right. you have sacrificed something very important. The addition of the vocals, I believe, was an important step away from the traditional French house sound, pushing this record to something different. Upon its release, many Daft Punk fans accused the band of embracing a traditional pop sound. But as we've heard, Thomas and Guimond, along with the rest of the influential French touch innovators, were feeling stifled by, by, by what they perceived as a growing repetitive, repetitiveness within their ranks. Daft Punk has never wanted to rest on their laurels. They want to push the industry further, create new genres, and stay ahead of trends by setting them for everyone in their wake. For their part, Daft Punk did not shy away from the label pop. Tomas said, in the noblest sense, the word pop to me is the juxtaposition of many genres. A little like what Queen could do, able to mix heavy metal, musical comedy, disco. Our generation has not uh, has not had to choose between punk or disco. I like the Clash as much as ABBA without making me kitschy. The important thing is to make choices outside of fads. Uh, which I think that's really interesting to to compare what they're doing to somebody like Queen because it's it's just like these wildly disparate ideas of music coming together into something new and exciting. And again, talking about people saying you know they've 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 turned to pop or whatever we've we we've a little bit ago went through the list of what pop music is in 2001 and yeah it is not this they're not turning to pop they are creating a new sound that pop will become yeah and um pop, so pop they infuse this kind of dance music in pop so seamlessly yeah that when we hear it in pop now we we no longer call it dance music yeah it's almost like going back now with the lens of time and listening to nirvana yeah. And being like, oh, it's going to be that sound forever. But yeah, it, it, we don't like, we know that from retrospect, you know? Like an Ariana Grande song or whatever, who, you know, whatever, Which is, whatever the pop it's song Spanish is. Spanish for big, big Ariana. Yes, correct. <laughs> I don't speak the language, but that's what I'm told. Yeah. Uh, whatever, whatever the pop song is of the day, right? Yeah. It has, it's probably got a full four on the floor beat. Yeah. And it's probably got this kind of, sound you it's, know we're gonna hear it in big room it's funny because she's years like after. famously a kind of a smaller person <laughs> but her name is big ariana you know what's yeah. funny we, you know we talk about four on the floor right? and you can see andy do this tight five <laughs> yeah, yeah. as soon as the pandemic's <laughs> over so but but we talk about four on the floor like it's it's like it's such a disco thing but i will see uh, I thought four on the floor was something wildly different, and most right. people don't want my hands on the no. dance floor. No, no, no. no. <laughs> but like the four on the floor. On the, so for I'm all on your mouth. For anybody, you know, for anybody who doesn't know, the classic disco beat is four on the floor, which is just a beat on one, two, three, four, boom, 
boom, boom, boom. There's a kick on every downbeat, right? So, so like, the, but the idea is that that's such a disco thing, which it is. It's the foundation of disco music and the foundation of dance music, but it's also the foundation of every single, like, you know, tribal pre-civilization chant. Like, that is the, 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 the beat just on being on the note is right. the origination of, of everything from like say Viking rowing tunes to like but ancient the, the tribal other component things. of four on the floor is the snare drum on yeah. two right. and four. So it's yeah. like boots, 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 boots and cats and boots yeah. and cats. But that's, that's four the on the sound. floor. Boots, 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 but, but, boots. but what I'm saying is that driving, yeah. that driving, that driving beat, like the heartbeat style beat, the heartbeat style beat is ever present in most of the celebratory, the celebratory or 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 um, you know you know all, all forms of music it's throughout music. history. It's, it's music it is. It's I mean, music scientifically, that's, it's scientifically that's created. That's the metronome. To make it feel good. Yeah, too. that's right. just the gun, beat. Gun, gun, it, it, you know, a beat on every beat. So, but it's like I, what it's a, uh, to my a, point the the. The thing that they introduce here with this album is this kind of sound for pop music so that when you have a pop star, a diva or whoever have a number one hit song that is by all measures a house song, yeah. we don't call it house music. No, we don't. It's yeah. just a pop song. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, um, just like, just like with homework, how they figured out how to, capture this music into tracks and distribute it like a an album which is something that i feel like a lot of house music people struggled with how to how to how to take these like long winding rolling 50 minute odysseys that they were creating in the club and and they synthesized it into uh, a, a a list of songs that could be presented as an album they took that idea and chiseled it down further to the point where we could present this music as singles for yeah. the radio. Um, the other idea that they came away with were was this is a very interesting clip from Tomas talking about at this time the two wildly different uh, factions or ideas of dance music being created in around this era and them wanting to try to synthesize it into something new. Uh, in electronic music, there's too much of a, of a dance floor functional music mm-hmm. on one side and the other one, which would be a down tempo, a relaxation, ambient mm-hmm. music that you listen in your bedroom or in your sofa, yeah. but which is very mellow and very chill, mm-hmm. like very as if it was the only two spectrum yeah. of what electronic music could be, mm-hmm. which is totally inaccurate and which is really going from an extreme to another. Mm-hmm. Where about uh, maybe a track like Affix to the Window Liquors, if we refer, and that maybe this is, was really the, 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 the track that shocked us and, and that really not influences us musically but influences us the most for the last four years. Aphex Twin Window Liquor was the single track that influenced them the most in the four year lead up to Discovery, which is crazy. It is crazy. Aphex, Twin, Aphex Twin's Window Liquor is a six minute track that had a music video and was a hit that people saw. Um, it's a, truly one of my top 10 favorite songs of all time. And also, we're recording this on what people have been referring to as Aphex Twin Day. It's, right. It's April 14th, the big <laughs> the big uh, Aphex Twin song that Kanye samples and that everyone knows. 
Um, I don't know how much I've talked about him on this show, but he, like, he was he was the the first electronic music that I yeah loved. I've never heard a a Daft Punk song and been like. This must have been inspired. Oh, this is by a window licker. This is a window licker. Let's just hear just a snippet of this song. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I can I can absolutely see that. <laughs> I, I can absolutely song. see how that is somewhere in the middle between the the lo-fi, like, chill out on your bed listening to calming electronic music and the party music. But it is so interesting to me for them to listen to that and say, we want to we want to find somewhere our own middle ground uh, in, in that realm. I have trouble contextualizing it because, like... The, I think the first couple records that people like from Aphex Twin is selected ambient works. And those are all down tempo songs and stuff like what we're talking like, you know, April 14th is, is not from those records. It's from later, but that is a soft yeah. ambient piano tune. But he is someone who came up in the Cornwall acid house IDM scene. He is someone who has like got these gigantic tracks that are beautiful and ambient. Yeah. But, makes some of the darkest the dance darkest, music in weirdest the world stuff, yeah. it's like it is truly hard for and me almost, to to reconcile that someone could make music well, that beautiful a, and that a, hard there's an arrhythmic quality to his yeah. music that is makes it it's not it's not it doesn't hit on the beat that you think it's going to and it keeps your body uh off balance in a way it's that it's brain it, it's they brain called it music. brain dance yeah yeah music it, for yes. your brain to it's, dance it's, to. It's, what does that mean because it's hard to it's hard to dance to that music because it, yeah. it's like so I, glitchy like we talk about edm yeah. right electronic yeah. dance music that has been a moniker we've heard in the last whatever years in the early 90s they were already calling this idm intelligent right. dance music whatever that means <laughs> yeah. well i mean i think there's the idea of like you know if, if you're making a song and and you you switch your grid to six from sixteenths to thirty seconds to be able to make a, a pattern. You know what I mean? I, it does. It, yeah. If you break it down further, your brain can find the pattern. And like so often, things that sound abrasive or glitchy or offbeat, uh, you, you know, it takes it takes this moment of breaking it down even further to find the pattern where it works. Which often, you know, it comes down to to further evaluation or, or whatever. But I do think that there's you know. We talk about it all the time when we're talking about, uh, you know, missing the miss, missing the rave scene or whatever the hell where you guys, you know, we, we, we say a lot like, oh, this is one of those ones that you would just, you know, not slow down, but but open up, open up yeah. the, the club with, you know, like and I think that like, again, thinking of that quote. Uh, that Gimon quote, uh, this idea that it's either chill or party. I think that we have. That was Tomas. I mean, Tomas, I'm sorry. But uh, I think that we have seen the effect of, of what he's talking about, where we're like, oh, this is one of those songs that you just open up the club, you get a little breather, you keep the energy going. And I think that, like, that kind of track is probably missing from from the world as Tomas sees it mm-hmm. uh, at, that, at that point, you know? So, uh, yeah, in reality, this is not pop music as we know it or as they knew it at the time this is music that has influenced the trajectory of pop music these tactics these sounds these stylized vocal choices became industry standards that set a tone for the entire entertainment business which can still be heard in music being produced today 
Daft Punk in evolving their sound did not make a concession. They created a movement. Gimon said, I think we make music for ourselves first. Then we're really happy when other people like it. But we try and make ourselves happy first. Even if there wasn't any audience, we'd still make this music for ourselves just because it's really pleasing and really cool. I don't think that's it, it's too much a progression, this record. I think it's something different rather than a revolution or a progression. I think the next thing will be as different from this as this was from the first one. We do what we feel at the moment, but it's not an evolution. We're happy to show that we can do music in a different way but that it's all still united. Um, it's really interesting to hear this quote uh, uh, taken in context for their career as a whole um, because they knew exactly what they wanted from this moment already. Uh, uh, you look at the, their cycles and their evolution and they create something that they're interested in in that moment. It's wildly different than anything they've done before, but it all, has all the foundational pieces of everything they've done previously. It's something that they have been interested in from the very beginning, creating something with with their um, their style, but in a new influential way. Uh, um, yeah, it's I think it's awesome to hear that they were already locked into that idea from the from this early on from their second record. Uh, and in truth, Daft Punk was not yet getting rich off their movement, even though they were now selling millions of copies of records for homework. The boys had spent more money on the artwork for the album than the actual recording of it. Afterward, they invested an incredible amount of money into their setup for their live shows and throughout the Discovery production schedule continued to put most of the money they made from Daft Punk back into Daft Punk. In fact, Tomas and Guimond completely gambled on themselves with the release of Discovery. At the same time they were producing the record, they were working with visual artists to create their iconic helmets, and much more on that later, and self-producing a full-length anime feature film set to the album, which we're going to cover in its own episode uh, after Discovery. The French music journalist uh, JDB, uh, Jean-Daniel Bevouet, that we talked about, he said this flurry of activity actually drove the boys into debt. Said JDB, no record company would have produced the movie that they wanted to make. Daft Punk is not about making music. It means controlling a universe and protecting it from outside intervention. So they they put themselves into debt making all of this stuff at the same time. It's, it's wild that... Uh they had such incredible control over what they were doing and have been so in control of their product, but the tunes from this record end up in terms of licensing everywhere. They end they, up yes. they, like they were so, not that they care about the control of the product, but once it's out, once it's out, it's out. It's in a movie. Who yeah. gives a shit? I don't think. Know? Yeah, that they don't matter. Yeah, right. It doesn't. That matter. doesn't matter for some people. For some bands, it matters. Radiohead won't put songs in in movies. Right. For these guys, it's like we, you know, with the product, we release it. We want it's it our out. Thing. Yeah. But then, who cares if it's in, a, yeah. in kids' movies and shit now? Over and over and over again, we will see them make money and then put that money back into the project. Yeah. At this point. It's estimated that each of them is it has about fifty million dollars. So yeah. they they have made their nut. Yeah. But but over and over again throughout the Daft Punk project, they've made clops of money and then they've put it back into Daft Punk for the next thing. Um, Bengalter said, "We've got much more control." This is this is two thousand one that he said this. We've got much more control than money. 
We can't get everything. We live in a society where money is what people want, so they can't get control. We chose control. Control is freedom. People say we are control freaks, but control is controlling your destiny without controlling other people. We're not trying to manipulate other people, just controlling what we do ourselves. Controlling what we do is being free. People should stop thinking that an artist that controls what he does is a bad thing. A lot of artists today are just victims, not having control. They're not free, and free, and that is pathetic. If you start being dependent on money, then money has to reach a point to fit your expenses. That's crazy. That sounds. Again, I'm going to say this same thing I said before, but that sounds like a mature, uh, a more mature yeah. version of the original uh, yeah. control statement. I yeah. mean, that sounds like a, a clarification for us, but also one that that Tomas consciously had to make for himself. Yeah. That what control means to him is controlling his freedom, controlling his destiny and being able to sacrifice whatever it takes to hold on to that, yeah. which in this case is the one thing most people I would, in this society won't sacrifice, which is financial well-being. I would assume that Virgin gave them a budget to create the record. But but outside of that, they're doing a lot of this. So the helmets, we'll talk about how much money they put into those the movie they had to do on their own because that that's an entirely different thing than going to Virgin and say we want to make four yeah. music videos. They weren't gonna they weren't gonna finance a movie. Uh, and then there was another super ambitious project bubbling up from the boys around this time that also uh, um, had a big startup cost. As Napster was giving record executives headache. Uh, headaches and changing the way the general public consumed music daft punk was on the forefront of digital distribution launching the daft club alongside their new album this we're going to talk about much more in depth depth in a couple weeks uh, uh i'm going to save all that stuff for the episode about daft club because like they talked about Daft Club a ton around this time. It is super interesting considering what the music industry was like around this time. So we're going to get in all that in a couple weeks. Uh, and, and specifically how how visionary these two guys were, were in thinking about what the what the industry was going to was going to turn into. Um, they they really are forward thinkers in in every aspect. It's it's really cool. Uh, I, I had read in some i don't remember what it was this was a while ago but uh hearing that quote hearing him talk about money and freedom and control i had i had heard someone contextualizing the pivot to um to robots and the robot helmets and stuff and the story and the backstory uh in terms of like you know they had this new identity and it was a, a phenomenal way for them to be able to just talk about the music and it also allowed them to deflect journalists asking about what oh, yeah. it meant to grow up in one of the richest districts of Paris with, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, with these family histories and, and yeah. success. And that is a quote from a 26 year old about what it means to not care about money that can only be said by someone who is who never wanted for food or money comfortable yeah. enough to not have to worry about it. Yeah. yeah. And I recognize that they pumped a lot of their own money back into this. That's an incredible gamble, but that is yeah. absolutely born of, yeah, what it means yeah. to not want for money totally yeah totally that that is an inescapable fact about these guys if a 25 year old started talking to me about how you don't need to be dependent on he has money parents. i would yeah i'm like that's a rich person yeah. oh he's, he's don't got rich speak parents. to me about that <laughs> oh yeah okay cool yeah he's got rich parents totally yeah and that yeah that's i think that's absolutely part of it 
um, um, that that is nothing against the the pride and protectiveness they've had against their project. But yeah, the their their the fact that they grew up with money meant that they could they could take these gambles. You that, can swing for the fences, yeah. and and that's you know if it if it takes that level of money and swinging for the fences to make incredible art, you know, so be it. They, um, they did a great job. Everybody that's ever written for the Simpsons, Nick Kroll, yeah. <laughs> anybody that any, any early 20 somethings that had, that starred in a mo- Hollywood motion picture in the last 20 years. I found out, what Ju- they all I found out Julia Louis Dreyfus is yeah. independently aside from acting yeah. to inherit $3 billion. <laughs> yeah. Cause she's, uh, she's Richard Dreyfus's <laughs> kid, right? No, she's like some she's other even person. more. Yeah, yeah. Nick Kroll's fa- parents are are rich. Wait, like his parents are billionaires. That's <laughs> so crazy. Like, it like I just can't imagine. Like, what is it? it it's can you really... imagine being in your early twenties and say talking to the press about money? <laughs> no, but but that I then then it's not just these guys. There is there's something about yeah because because they don't have to scrape and scrounge from the very beginning. Uh, like rich people have a leg up in the entertainment but business. Think, it's just like part of part of it. I think yeah. it's like also, all these young rich artists. And you don't have to worry have, about that kind right, of but, failure. Yeah. But I think it's also worth talking about that like that mentality, right? Of, of you know, we want control over our lives, our future, our freedom. Um that mentality, that perspective on money is almost just another form of nostalgia for a time that is not so close to end game capitalism, because I don't think that the flaw is in the way that he's thinking about this, this freedom and time and money. I just think it doesn't really exist. The closer you get to end game capitalism, which is a world that we, uh, we have grown up in. And and most people who are listening to this, uh, you know, most people alive today have grown up much closer to end game capitalism, uh, than, than, uh, than, than we realize. And I think that there is a time where money is different and, 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 and that is a, a, a more viable, um, lifelong philosophy than yeah. the one the grind all day every day to make rent kind of philosophy that we all have to live by yeah. but again it is still only a philosophy a 26 year old can have rich, if they have rich or un, not rich un, 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 unending financial resources yeah. rich or not rich it is it is incredibly smart to have built the robots on the narrative because if someone were to interview me about what I'm doing, and they're like, Devin, what was it like when you did this when you were 12? Oh, I blew up and it I'm a sucks. robot now. No, I'm a robot. Yeah. Like, I, we'll don't, I would not that. want to answer any I got of a, that. I got a bunch about the robot stuff. We'll, we'll get into that. Um, uh, it is hard to know whether Daft Punk knew that Discovery would be as massive as it was, but we do know that they were interested in heightening the idea of anonymity and mystique behind the band. Heroes of theirs, like Paul Williams, had crafted a story alongside their music. Tomas and Guiman were interested in the same ideas. And here is uh, their buddy Todd Edwards talking about that specifically. I think the masks are a reflection of who they are as people, because if they really wanted fame, they could take the masks off. Whatever, develop an image that showed their faces, but they didn't want that. They are successful. They didn't start living these extravagant lifestyles, you know, even for being so successful, I would still say that they are still, they live kind of humbly, you know, you know, materialistically humbly and, and they reinvest into their art, which I love that idea. Uh, 
You can hear the New Jersey and Todd Edwards when he talks. I love Rome Todd Anthony Edwards. and Todd Edwards, two of the collaborators, yeah. both from New Jersey. Both from New Jersey. They love New Jersey. Filmmakers do not self-finance projects. Hollywood, the first thing they tell you, don't put your own money into it. Yeah. Daft Punk. Yeah. They they that that is something I really commend. They spent their money yeah. on this anime. Tomas said homework did not have science fiction connotations because at the time techno music was strongly associated with futuristic things. This annoyed us very much. We wanted to give a different image to our music more hot for discovery. It made us laugh to go in the opposite direction. And boy, did they, they absolutely embraced the idea of science fiction after their successful homework tour. The boys ditched the t uh, cheap Hollywood masks they had used to obscure their faces and wanted something more iconic. We are showing our faces that we became robots and that we don't wear masks anymore. Yeah. But the main difference probably is that as we are robots now, it's a step to a, to now a precise identity. So they were no longer boys, not even men. From here on forward, they are robots. That clip was from an interview where Tomas was asked about the new masks. As you can tell, the answers from around this time were that the boys were in actuality not wearing masks anymore. This is who they are. Um, in the film Daft Punk Unchained, it is revealed that Tomas and Guimon were very interested in the Millennium Bug. They were fascinated by the, the people around the globe that thought that something catastrophic was going to happen around uh, the clock when the clock turned over to the year 2000. And they wanted to incorporate this idea into their mythos. So when they reemerged from their post-homework hiatus, Tomas and Guimon let the world know that uh, that a terrible explosion had occurred in their home studio while working on the new album. When they came to, they realized they had become robots. They're robots now. We started working on this album about two and a half years ago. But what happened is like uh, we had a a little accident with the machines on the 9th of September, 99. And so uh, we had to uh, do uh, some uh, uh, reconstruction with the doctor and, and that, that's why we are looking like robots today. So uh, we, we, we have forgotten some bits of what happened before that time. But um, uh, most of the, the, the recording of the final production was done after that date. I love that. I was listening to that interview earlier. It is funny how they're still talking to the press. Yeah. And it's so clumsy and they oh, don't yeah. really have, like later they're like, we don't speak. Yeah. Right. You get like them talking to Pete Tong for 10 minutes here and there, but like what they're, it's so clunky at the beginning yeah. and it's so fun. Like it really, it, it has a mystique to it, but it's funny here. Yeah. It's not as funny later. It's more no, serious. No. This is very fun it and is, funny, so and I love it. The, that clip specifically is from an interview they gave to a Japanese outlet. And the video, the, they <laughs> recorded the interview. The video is them walking around Tokyo, and they're, they're in the robot <laughs> costumes and crazy suits, and they're dancing and high-fiving people and, like, doing the robot on the subway. They're wearing, and, like, like, a frilly, like, Victorian <laughs> yeah. suits. The, the helmets at this point look kind of cheap. Crazy. It they looks look like crazy. Halloween, and it's so fun. Yeah. I, and there's, like, there's they're sitting in the – at one point, they're sitting down. There's, like, Japanese children around them, and uh, these kids are, like, poking them in the ear pucks. <laughs> like, think, like – but it is it's so funny. Are these uh, are these 
these are the first robot suits the ones with the tube and the back so yeah. uh well there's there's different versions of them they have mobile ones that they can walk around in easier uh we'll get into the the whole get up with the backpacks but yeah uh yeah. when they've got the when they have the um interface right they've got big tubes coming out of them they got big backpacks they're huge they're clunky they're weird they've got um yeah Gimon has some like crazy like Victorian era frilly thing. And, and, it looks like Pride and Prejudice. Isaac Asimov's Pride and Prejudice. Tomas has got like a Willie Loman suit on. And they're like, they're Guimane all has over the eyes. place. Yeah, Guimana has <laughs> eyes. They're all over the place. Um, it's, I don't, the, it is awesome. Like Electroma and, era stuff is very serious. And I like it. And it's, yeah. it's fun. And the Pyramids Blast. And then the this random is, access memories thing is something completely different. Yeah, it's sleek, sleek and, and fucking cool. 70s and sexy. Cocaine energy. They're doing they're doing shoots with like <laughs> like uh, models, like supermodels. This era, this is the most I relate to this them. Is, this I'm is like just this is nerd shit. Dorky, we're having fun. Yeah. Like let's go to Japan. Yeah, they're like, 26, they're having fun, they're traveling is, the globe, they're they're being nerds. This is the closest this is I don't know this I, I guess we're gonna talk we'll about talk them in about a couple the, years but this is kind of they're like my age yeah and and yeah. I get yeah this and they are they are I get we'll this talk decision making about, they'll process. talk about the design process and what they wanted it to look like uh, uh, but they were they were obviously very obsessed with anime around this time yeah so uh, they were designing the helmets and they were working we'll get into Tony Gardner and, and them working the helmets they they needed the process to run quicker um, than Tony was comfortable with because they had the anime in their brain. Leslie Masumoto was working on it. We'll talk about that um, after the Discovery episode. We'll do an Interstellar episode all on its own. But they they needed that the uh, robot costumes done in order to have a Daft Punk cameo in the Interstellar. So they needed they needed to uh, display these to the world uh, before the anime was done so that they could make a cameo. Um, or like they and were... the lead time on anime at this time oh, is much yeah. longer than it is even oh, today. Oh, yeah. So the anime ends up... Like, the whole thing comes out in, like, 2003. They needed to draw that, though, years later. So yeah. they needed to know what they were going to look like. The original designs had hair. <laughs> like, like the, it went through a lot of no, design No, the helmets grow hair. They cut it off. <laughs> okay, they shave like, it Like, they off. have yeah. to go before the show get it <laughs> yeah. shaved because it will grow hair on its own. Uh, but That's I, what the pack I, does. Absolutely. I love I love giving a band a mythos like this. There's something yeah. I love the gorillas. And again, Daft Punk music I love. I've connected with the music. Gorillas music I love. I've connected with the music. There's something about giving this band like a fictional story and following along even if it's the simplest thing. We we exploded and we're robots now. That appeals to me as yeah. a lover of things like Ziggy Stardust uh, and things like that. That appeals to me. I like that idea. What is not as fun to me is 10 years from now when journalists are like, well, obviously you're the robots. What is way funner to me yeah. is they have to sit down with a journalist and with a straight face be like, 
No, we're no, robots. we're robots now. Yeah, uh, the, like just say like, it, just lie. I should have. I should have. So I should have included the question that led up to that because he was like, "You, I, the last time I saw you, you guys were in like these crazy Halloween masks. So what's the deal with this crazy thing?" And they're like, "No, these aren't. <laughs> these aren't masks. That is very fun <laughs> to me. Yeah. That's what I that, like. No, these aren't masks. These are our real we're, faces. We've been, that <laughs> is what I us. like yeah. the most out of any of this. Yeah, like them being like." No, this is for this real. This is now. us now. That's very fun. <laughs> yes, this is for real. Stop asking me that. This is for real. You know what's crazy? There's a there's a Brad Neely comic strip from uh, a while ago, uh, and it's a mom holding a pair of jeans and a kid in an alligator costume. He's cowering in the corner of his room with his arm up, and he's going, "No, this is who I am now." I that's love my, that. That's like, my energy. This is so bold yeah. and funny yeah. in a way where it's like it's it does. Yeah. There's no marketing machine behind it no. yet. It's just they have to walk into a room and with yeah. these silly costumes be like, this is us now. You know what's what's crazy? You were just talking about gorillas. Uh, I just looked it up because I was curious as well. Uh, self-titled gorillas album came out the same month. Yeah. It came out uh, yeah. like three weeks after this. Yeah. Which uh, is crazy. Um, we just celebrated the 20 year, 20 year anniversary yeah. of that. Uh, Tomas and Guiman have always been interested in using their work to get closer to their heroes. So I do not think it's an accident that they sought out Tony Gardner to help them create their robot uh, image. Tony is a legendary special effects and costume designer and makeup specialist from Hollywood. His first ever job in this field was on the set of the music video for Michael Jackson's Thriller. He helped design the costumes and was and he actually plays the first zombie that pops out of the ground in the video. That uh, If you watch, that's Tony. We've talked about how important that record is for the bots. Uh, look at the artwork compared to the Ram artwork. They love Thriller. So I can only imagine this connection was no coincidence. Uh, and I, I also know that um, uh, Tony and the boys were put together through Spike Jones. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, Tony went on to found his own influential special effects and makeup studio called Alterion. And that is where Tomas and Guy Mon found him. And here is a short clip of Tony talking. But the challenge was to create something that had a, a linear readout that he could type responses to people onto his arm. Gimon was more of a vertical screen to work in where we could take advantage of the length of it and have stuff run through it. But these are all ideas that came from Tomas and Gimon in the very beginning. So that, that was very interesting to me. Uh, in the, those early days, you'll see them flashing stuff on their faces the the words coming off of Tomas's helmet are controlled by a pad on his arm at That's this time. Cool as hell. So he is typing something onto his onto his forearm and he can broadcast whatever he wants. Um uh Gimon's was there is never any words on his helmet, which I didn't realize until I heard yeah. this Tony Gardner uh uh interview. He said that was that was a choice that he thought was would be interesting for the boys because Gimon is so much more soft spoken sure. uh, that he he was like you should only be images that's uh, because that's more your personality. So when you look at him, he's got hearts and stars and lines and design work on his and that like I never thought about that, but that is that's really cool. cool. Yeah, you know, that it's is very funny. Cool. I don't think of you know when you you see the helmets during this era, you know it's it's the the horizontal for Tomas and vertical for Guimon and the colors and stuff. I don't think of the helmets this way. I often think of them as mostly reflective surfaces, yeah. sometimes with some, some wire lights on the sides. I think of them in, in the way 
I don't think of them as LED that often. They they take the they take a lot of the LEDs out even before the human after all era. Yeah. So you'll see these weird transition helmets in between the discovery era and when they come back with human after all. And in that point, Guimond's face is gold mm-hmm. and in Tomas's might have some words on it. Uh, so they, they shed a lot of that in between. And I probably think it's because of the bulkiness of it. Yeah. And then when they come back for human after all, they're blacked out. Yeah. They, they are, they get rid of. So, so really the the LED displays on their eyes are a very short time of them being the robots. Yeah, they transfer their their love for LEDs into the show. <laughs> into the show. And it's not the helmets yeah. anymore. Yeah. And I think that's a it's a functional thing. They have to be able to see through it. Um the French music video directing duo Alex and Martine uh, who have worked with Cassius, Phoenix, U2, and others. They sketched up an idea designed for Tomas and Guimon, and they brought that to Tony Gardner for their first meeting. Tomas's helmet was based on the robot from the day the Earth stood still. That's a really important movie to him, which I thought that was great. You can see it in his helmet. Yeah, exactly. That Like the horizontal eye shield, that's from that. Yeah. Definitely, that's where his came from. Uh, Guimon's had a gold vertical shield, in the sketches, the robots had hair. Uh, they wanted to be much more of an anime-type robot than a sci-fi-style one. That's where they were coming from, which makes sense. Uh, and you can see those uh, pictures on our Facebook page uh, at Alive 2021, a Daft Punk podcast. Search us on Facebook or Instagram, uh, and you can see those. Because they look crazy with They're hair. crazy. They're insane with hair. Yeah. Um, uh, Tomas is specifically in the image looks almost more just like a face covering than anything with the hair. Um, and, uh, uh, and then Guimans is almost the same. It's just got a crazy wig on top. I heard that initially they were, I mean, they, they ended up when they were like coming up with the design, they were talking about, um, you know, just using synthetic hair or whatever. But at one point, they were talking about using real robot hair. For <laughs> yeah, you know, it's incredibly expensive because get- what people don't understand is that robots' hair is uh, is is made of like the same stuff as diamonds. Yeah, it's, it's like very rare. Yeah, I mean, for rare. you to find a robot it's, that's still even growing its hair, yeah, and to har- harvest Cause, it is because the other thing is robots have to make the conscious choice to grow hair. Yeah, they have to like find it within themselves <laughs> and decide too. It's yeah. it's really and, crazy. Like, and almost every robot I know. Chooses it's, not to. It's too much of a hassle. Yeah, because they have to like they have to jack in so much more if they want to grow their yeah, own hair. Absolutely, it's, it takes so much power and energy to make. Yeah. Um, quickly though, the the hair design and everything that they wanted to do, uh, they had to they had uh, they had to kind of pare some stuff down. The character started out with hair, very much an anime style robot, and once it all went together the first time, it was like. There's a lot of parameters here that we need to take into consideration to make all this work. The idea with Guimond's helmet in the beginning was it was going to be gold, like the NASA space helmets. But you can realize that you can't not see the camera. We needed some sort of a scrimmed surface inside that so that they could be invisible even if somebody was shooting a a flash photo of them. In the beginning, the hand design was more of a, uh, a glove that had interesting patterns and textures in it. And then the, the fingers on these um, being solid like this didn't allow the, a sense of touch as far as like dials and things went. So this turns into a spandex glove. 
So they had these grander ideas that just practically weren't going to work. Um, the the gloves they show, they're they're like uh, they're almost like thick like work gloves, and they've got deep grooves. They look very cool, but they there's no way they would have been able to do anything in them. Right. So um, they they started with a, a a grander vision and started paring things down as they worked with Tony. The the general idea, the look, the vision, everything they came to him with and they started to work with him to practically figure out how they could do it and still function with them on. Uh, the project started with a simple head cast of Tomas and Guiman. They sculpted the ro- robot masks around that with water-based clay. Uh, but as they went, the the project quickly ballo- ballooned and the robots just became more and more fully realized. There was a company out of Ohio that does the metalizing for the spacesuits for NASA. And in the beginning, we were having them do the, the first face shells. We actually engaged the man who designed the Jumbotron screens to do Guiman's LED readout. Self-contained in a really tight helmet means there's very little room to work in. So they had these sort of like spaceman backpacks and all these cables that went up to the back of their heads so they had this idea they worked with a an influential costume and makeup designer and then within a couple weeks they're in contact with the company that makes the metal casings for nasa which is i believe if i if i understand that correctly that's the ball company that makes all the ball mason jars they they do they work they do all the nasa stuff too and so they're working with the ball company to uh, to make space shit for their stupid robot uh, music stuff. And then they're working with the guy that invented jumbo screen technology to be like, can you can you make that enormous thing at a basketball game? Can you put that on my face? It's That's crazy. Te- it's technically a shrimp boat shot. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm what I keep thinking about what I'm having trouble wrapping my head around is like. What would I do if, if for some reason, this podcast, something happened and we got $10,000? Yeah. Would we be like, all right, cool, we all get three grand? Or would we be like, how can we spend this $10,000 on the podcast? Uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. What? Number two. 100%. I, I don't know. If, you know, when I, when I, well, do we, stuff and I get a thousand bucks. I'm not like there's <laughs> time to double down. I don't. I <laughs> there's been a couple times in our artistic life that we've let something get away from us, like, like at at the Planet Ant Theater that we help run in in Michigan. Uh, there's a uh, a Nick Cage film festival, <laughs> and at a certain point, somebody was like, "It would be funny," or we got in contact with one of his stunt doubles. And somebody was like, it would be funny if we set his stunt double at, on fire at the festival. <laughs> and a couple weeks later, Darren is talking to the head of the poli- the fire department and and city managers about the logistics <laughs> of setting a man on fire. And I like you sit down and you realize this this bit, this funny idea has really gotten away from us in a very serious way where we're we have to buy a half million dollars worth of insurance so we can set a stranger on fire in the middle of a park. We 
we did it, by the we way. Did we, we did it. We set that guy on fire. We set what a man an incredible fire. thing. Yeah, He's, and we it definitely cost us. Uh, I mean, it was it was it was a lot of fundraising. We got a written lot up of, in Vulture for yeah, that. Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of the. I mean, just about every dollar we of money revenue that festival brought in went towards the, lighting the guy on fire. But like, my question would be, I am confident that if we, you know, in this hypothetical, we would find something that would add. More than ten thousand dollars of value to this show. We raise right? you. You do an incredible job of raising money for stuff. And uh, on, on mic and off mic, we should pick something that we want to do with money. Yeah, <laughs> figure out the money the and Cause, do it. Cause let's yeah. do it with this show or whatever. There's, let's let's find money and do something crazy. We talked about <laughs> how they kind of drove themselves in debt a little bit. This is how they do it because they they have big ideas. And then you watch them get away from them where they're like, it would be cool to be robots. And all of a sudden they're in contact with the man that invented Jumbo Scrons, Jumbotrons. And, and they're like, how, how can my face say the say the word baby? On there's no, so there's no money in any of what they're doing, right? The anime is promotional not for the yet. album. This it is not until they figure out the pyramid in the show. That yeah. they that they well, find but, but the, other the question, marriage. Of, I think that the explosion of all this stuff, absolutely, the return on investment of from the, the from the robots and from the right. the anime was astronomical. But there yeah. is a version of this where they took where, this on yeah, the road this, and made return on investment. All, if, yeah, yeah. If this that's was true. a service of a live show, that, which I, was, I, never I think, was. But there, there's also a, a version of this where the album was a dud and they they ended up destitute. You yeah, know, because they gambled on themselves in a crazy way. We can't. I think that when looking at art, I think that people make the mistake of looking at the individual pieces as the whole. You know what I mean? And I think it's very important in Daft Punk's case. I I think that every individual little part doesn't have its own profit loss thing. You know, in their mind, they are creating one big thing. So they're, Robot suits, they go hand in hand with making an anime. They go hand in hand with talking to NASA divine, to, to, to do do all of this stuff that, that, you know, if we look at the profit and loss for this specific project, it is a huge loss for them. But again, now they have the ability to go into an interview where interviewers are asking them, I heard you went to NASA. I heard you have this anime. I heard you have this. And they're like, we're robots now. We don't remember the answer to your right. question. And so they're crafting this this narrative that they have 100% control over and it is only made more ridiculous by the things that we find out later. I mean, it, it is, it is, it is, it is this stuff that makes them go from a, a flash in the pan to a legacy that mm-hmm. will go on forever. Right. Changing uh, yeah. pop culture in, yeah. in our world. And Absolutely. to that end, I also don't think, I think it's easy to, for me to be like, you know, the, the ups and downs of their careers as a whole. I also think at this time they're not like, all right, we'll do the robots so we can yeah. do Coachella I mean, 10 years. Right I now. think they're just like, just what are we going to do that's fun right, right now? They, like, they and, just kept building on the idea that they didn't want to show their faces and they were like, Let's fucking or the anime. Right. The anime is not like, oh, we're going to. It's just like, the what an- do we yeah. want to do right it would, now? It would also what are we a, interested in making yeah. this year? It would also be a different thing if the anime was about the robots. Right. It's not. It's not. The the robots are in the audience watching the crescendos play in in the. That's it. It. They. Yeah. To your point. When they make they're something. Not, they're not yeah. making. They're not making a 
total brand package yet. They're just they're doing making these cool stuff things. that they think yeah. is they're fun. Just doing when cool we, things and when they becomes, make a movie that they're the stars of, it's one of the least musical board things in the world. It's one of the weirdest things they've ever... That is... We'll, we'll have a, an Electroma episode at all, but one of the one of the coolest, most uh, most badass punk rock things about these guys is they can make a global smash hit phenomenon record that changes the course of pop music forever, and then they can turn around and make a silent film about robots deciding to self-destruct an art house avant-garde piece of of cinema uh that is made for who i don't know uh other than themselves and they they can occupy that same space and it does it feels like they should be there it feels like they should be on top of the world with one more time it feels like they should be the art house movie guys they can do anything i think that there is you know i'm, I'm gonna go back to setting nick cage's stuntman on fire sure. in a public park one of the driving forces for me doing that was wondering if we can and wanting to prove to myself that this is a ridiculous idea and I think that I can get a group of people to work together to make it happen because it is ridiculous and it is a challenge. And I think that that creating for creating to prove that you can to no one other than yourself i think is a very very strong driver yeah. and i think we see and it letting, a lot and letting uh letting your art get out of control it, like having an idea and or, letting that idea get so or, big here, that let you're me, like let me challenge that about letting it get out of control because i think there's an element of 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 you know again hindsight understanding what they set out to do you know based on the results and i don't think the result is often what they set out for i think that that a lot of artists set out and making the art is part yeah. of their creative Not out process of control, out of hand out getting, of, yeah getting like out of the idea get out of hand it can be like so much bigger than they even but envisioned but what i would 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 say is it seems to me like you know they probably did stop things when it felt like it was out of hand. I, I, I mean, what we say is out of control or growing. I mean, I, they probably just set out to make Daft Punk this thing and mm. let it become whatever the hell they want it to be. Formless, mm. nameless. I mean, if, again, if we if we look at like, you know, uh, Machiavellian rules of power or whatever, formlessness is a huge, is a huge, uh, uh, huge uh, uh, thing that people who are, uh, who wants to, to maintain power, formlessness and the ability to change very quickly and fill whatever space you need to fill. That is a huge, uh, like Machiavellian lesson right there, mm -hmm. uh, for maintaining power because you can be whatever you need to be. And that is something that Daft Punk does insanely well. The, um, the product is very important to them, right? What right. comes out. But I also think that what we don't see that we're not privy to because it's private but takes up most of their career is also the process. Yeah. And I think, you know, we don't see what it means for them to hang out and noodle around and listen to records for no. three years, but that's the majority of what they do. Yeah. They do stuff where they like the process. Yeah. And I think they like the process of going through the production of this stuff. And it, you can, you can like the product. You can like making movies or music yeah. and not enjoy the part where you have it's, to make it. Yeah. It's their, their whole career is, these stretches of dormancy followed by gigantic bursts of right. energy. And I think right. Like, and, and what, but when we perceive them as dormant, 
they're creating That's together they're doing it well, like yeah. like let's put this in our, our perspective right like we could say that the time that we started alive 2021 as this piece of this project we're com- going to complete is the time that we decided alive 2021 and then we started working on scripts and ideas and stuff but i would make an argument that this was set in motion over the course of over the course of of last two and a half three years and you know looking back you know if we were to portion up this section of my artistic career we could take the last three years with hindsight and say that's the uh that's part of the alive 2021 section of the artist darren's life you know so i think that like there's this need to put things in boxes that that doesn't actually exist during the creative process absolutely that they were probably just doing whatever they felt creatively inspired by and eventually it got them to a point where they said this is what we're doing and we're going to start on it now um so so i i mean yeah it's 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 a it's 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 mind-blowing to try to 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 map something out Mm -hmm. that was never that was never intended to be a roadmap uh and that's inherently what we're trying to do here which is very cool Oh my God. I, I, this is actually really embarrassing. I don't, I don't, I don't mean to do this. I don't normally do this, but, um, my mom got here early to pick me up. I gotta, I gotta jump. I gotta jump. My mom came to pick me up that, you know, (laughs) honestly, that that's perfect timing though. Cause this thing is going long. Yeah. Uh, we're going to end up talking about the album discovery for almost five hours. So I think it, for our audience's sanity, it's probably best that we cut it up. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. Yeah. For sure. So we're going to, we're going to come back next week. We're going to have more about the history. We're going to talk a lot about the helmets. I know that people love the robot stuff. Uh, next week, we're going to da- dive way into the, um, the helmets, the development of the helmets, the idea of the helmets, all that stuff. And then we're going to go fucking track by track and and get into it uh that way so we have so much more discovery content for you but it just seems best to break it up right yeah no we gotta miss um, rose knight he's coming (laughs) miss rose knight he's coming mom stop i'll be there in a second uh you guys got songs this week yeah yeah let's yeah let's do that right well that that's something we do every week we talk about uh if, if if you like dance music uh we're we are here for you uh, every week we talk about uh, dance music songs away from Daft Punk that we're obsessed with, whether they be new stuff, old stuff, stuff that uh, we have rediscovered while researching this show, whatever we have been obsessed with this week. Uh, so why don't you go first, Darren? Yeah, so I picked a uh, – you guys are not going to be able to spell or pronounce uh, this man's name. Uh, I believe it's pronounced Ton Starts Bandit. T O N S T A T O N S T A R T S S B A N D H T. All one word. Uh, this is a song from 2009. It's a song. It's a song I love. It's so low and bassy and groovy. It's called uh, Five Foot Seven. That sounds like that sounds like um, coming out of a, a haunted house, like of mirrors. Oh yeah, like, I don't know what I just dude. Th- it's, it's it's all weird and distorted. So for those of you who want to look that song up, it's just the number five, the letter F T, 
uh, and then number seven uh, is the title. Uh, it's it's it is one of my favorites. Just low, bassy, groovy. Uh, if you're just trying to just like sit back and sink into something and hear some some low waves hit your face, yeah. that's the one. I don't know. I don't know if this is the episode that we released this uh, this week or if you're going to hear us talk about it next week. But this is like the the window liquor thing with the Aphex Twin, like so, like downbeat. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Chill out, um, like lay in your bed kind of dance yeah. music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, uh, absolutely. I I feel like I should. I, I I don't I don't want to piss her off, so I'll just ask her what she thinks. Mom, what song should I what song should I pick for my favorite thing this week? Devin, pick feel my needs, my wife. <laughs> this is a this is a dumb. Uh, my mom, my mom wants, what you no, said. It's a good bit. My mom wants me to uh, play "Feel yeah. My Needs" by Weiss. She said it's yeah, her right. favorite song. Here this we week. go. has incredible taste incredible in piano taste. house piano house we, we were just talking about last week right like uh p like traps with piano there's there's a little bit more of it that's that where I it belongs that's, that's where it belongs where, that's where the piano belongs that's right where the piano that's why belongs. they invented the piano that's why mozart invented the piano. yeah that's why he conceptualized the piano yeah um that's an incredible track and i would love more more of that we were talking about that this week Neither of us had heard that until this week, but it is an incredibly popular song. It's got 46 song. million plays. I've that's, never heard it, not in the club, that is not something, anywhere. That's something about this style of music is we are very locked into it, but something will hit a certain pocket of something and become incredibly popular somewhere, uh, maybe a, 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 a geographic region of the world or a specific style of thing or it's in certain clubs, and you just miss it. That could like that could be a TikTok challenge or something. Yeah, something like that. that. N- that's not being it's not being yeah. spun anywhere, and it's huge. And it uh, and it, um, so yeah. Again, if you if you hear music that you think we would like, send it to us. Yeah, if you have, if you have great tracks, send we, it to info uh, at live twenty twenty one. We're pretty locked into su- stuff like this, but that's a incredibly popular song that somehow has passed us by. So. Uh, all right, my song this week is going to be from Alignment. It's a song called Nothingness. That's warehouse music right that's there. Techno. That's, that's techno. That's techno, baby. That's techno. Boy, oh, boy. Next week, we're going to have the climactic conclusion of the discovery episode yeah again we are stopping because devin's mom is here to pick him up not because we stopped and realized that we had almost five hours of content (laughs) and that it would be mortifying and and upsetting and maybe maybe even turn up people some people off if we put out a five-hour episode it would be crazy if we met up at 6 30 to work on stuff and it was nearly one o'clock in the morning it would be crazy if we got together and at a reasonable time like dinner time and uh it was almost morning when we finished recording (laughs) that would be nuts right we never do stuff we never do stuff we never get together around evening and (laughs) and hang out until morning we never do that that's not our that's not our vibe at all uh big folks uh we know you love daft punk we laugh we love daft punk 
legitimately, we talked about these boys for uh, for over five hours tonight. Um, uh, we love that you are into this. We love that uh, you're as excited about it as we are. If you're out there enjoying our show, uh, subscribe on whatever podcast app that you are listening to. Uh, rate us if that podcast app allows you to do that. Please leave a review if uh, your podcast app allows you to do that. Uh, and tell your friends. Um, we're here talking about these these robots uh, in depth in ways that uh, is almost driving me insane. Uh, I, and I hope... I hope you're getting some enjoyment out of it. We um, hope it drives you insane. We hope too. that it, we hope that this drives you insane too. Uh, um, but uh, but yeah, uh, uh, we're at alive2021.com. We're on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, if you search for the podcast there, uh, you can find me at uh, um, I'm Andy at Dr. Good Tweets, Dr. Good Tweets on Twitter. Uh, I'm I'm Darren. You can find me on all the social medias. I'm just at the most Darren T H E M O S T D A R R E N. And you can also catch me on uh, Facebook Gaming. Uh, I stream video game content over there at DSG Gaming just about every day. So check that out. Yeah, I'm uh, Devin Rosni at D E V I N R O S N I on uh, most of the social media, and I'm putting out music under the name Devin Jetski, uh, like on Spotify and SoundCloud and iTunes and. Uh, I got a track coming out next week, so buy it and yeah. listen to it and um, be my best friend. Be <laughs> our best friend. And if you want to just connect with us about Daft Punk, if you have info about them, if you have a story to tell about us or about them, if you have made uh, some sort of fan art or slash fic about them, uh, connect with us at um, the email address info at alive2021.com and we'll share it on the show. Uh, that's it. Uh, be back next week for uh, the the dramatic conclusion of our Discovery episode. We'll see you next week. Songs are just a window into the groove. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Alive 2021 is a member of the Planet Ant Podcast Network and was created by Andy Reid, developed by Andy Reid, Devin Rosni, and Darren Shelton, with technical production by Darren Shelton. For more information, please visit Alive2021.com.